Top of the morning to you, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, everybody. It's, uh, it's going to be a good program. Just went through a little a, uh, a little April winter storm here in Utah. Got to uh, drive in the snow. That's always fun. Haven't been able to do that for... I don't know, weeks. But it makes for a fun day, and uh, I hope your drive, your commute is going well. Today we've got a great show for you. How do you uh, how do you feel about your boss? A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking to Caroline Dowd Higgins about a bad boss. What are you supposed to do when you just can't stand your boss? Apparently a lot of Americans out there can't stand their bosses. Now, here's the crazy thing. Some of you are those bosses, so you might want to listen up. Not that I don't want Don to think we're subtly talking about him. He's a fantastic boss. This is our passive-aggressive way of protesting. Yeah, we're going to fix Don for heaven's sakes. I hope he's listening. No, but bosses, you know, a lot of people don't like their bosses, and that's crazy. Now, I know James loves his boss to death. I love my boss. Who is your boss? Don. Don's fantastic. He's our boss, yeah. yeah. Don's the best boss in the world. You know We why? don't really have labels here at BYU Radio. We don't. No. That's what I was told when I came in. I asked, well, what should I put on my email signature? Yeah. You know, so when I send it out, people know who's communi- who they're communicating with, what's my yeah, connection they, to the show. They, you, need a, you're, you put the last emperor. That's weird. Well, I mean, he, he said we don't have labels, so I made one up. It well, didn't seem to matter, apparently. Maybe you should have made one up that like had something to do with the show or something. I don't know. I don't want to like tell What about you. like Supreme Leader? <laughs> Isn't that Putin? No, that's reserved for Kim Jong-il. Oh, is that Kim Jong-il? Kim Jong-il, Un. sorry, his mm-hmm. father. Il, un, you know, it's potato, same, potato. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, don't get him mad. Don't get him mad at us. So today we'll be talking about bosses. You know. It's, you know. Everybody's got a boss story. There's some stats put out earlier this month that uh, motivated us to to find this guest. It's crazy. With how high the numbers are. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. A lot of people do not like their boss. Um, Anyway, uh, interesting thing. I I saw finally a picture of the Scooby-Doo van. Yes. It's just a black van, right? It's a black limo van. Yeah. She's got, I'm sure, a a couch in there with a recliner. It's not your nine-person, like. Yeah. Van you see driving down the freeway, it's a yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a luxury. But but I mean, what do you expect? Right. It's it's apparently it's armor. She's running a a, a campaign that some feel is going to reach two point five billion dollars. Are you serious? Did you see the video then? Of, Which is about thirty seven dollars per voter when you break it out. I mean, honestly, if she wants to buy my vote, just give me thirty seven bucks. Right. Is, and that's the is thirty seven dollars enough for you to make a vote on who to be president? If they give you thirty-seven dollars, well, well that's that, the problem, though. I mean, is that actually actual voters? If if they take the same amount of voters that uh, President Obama got in the last election, yeah, break it out per voter, it <laughs> comes out to around two point five billion. They feel to win this election. Mercy, 
That's the problem. But you know what? They got the press running. That's for sure. Yeah, that was funny. They're sprinting around this community college in Iowa. Yeah. Trying to, because I guess they were told she was going to be at the front door yeah, and she yeah. went to the back door. So they're sprinting <laughs> around the building. Nothing more fun than to watch the press run. It's just or great. not run well. Yeah. Hobble. Looks whichever. like a lot of them don't run much. No. It seemed like a foreign Especially thing. Especially with the awkward equipment they have yeah, to Yeah, they got to grab their tripod and a stool and They're a all chair set up for the, the van to drive by. And like, oh, no, they have to pick it up and run. And yeah. The funny thing is I don't know that I do that very much because you don't want to tick the press corps off. It's the Iowa press corps. Still. Iowa's important. She's running a national campaign. That's what she says. And she came in third last time in Iowa. That's right. Do not make the Iowa press corps run. Or if you do, take him out to Chipotle after. Go buy him some burritos. That'll make him happy. Anything else going on in the news? White House and members of the Senate struck a deal Tuesday to give Congress a say on any potential or nuclear deal with Iran after negotiations are complete by June 30th. Mm. So the thing they, the White House was dreading, and they've now come to some sort of compromise. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee moved forward with the bill to give Congress 30 days to review the deal. As the Washington Post explains, Congress should then choose to put forth a resolution disapproving of the deal, but the Senate approval would require 60 votes, and if Obama vetoes the resolution, two-thirds of the Senate, or 67 votes, would be required to overturn it. The White House reiterated that Congress still does not have the power to approve or disapprove the whole deal, only to vote on lifting sanctions against Iran. It's the weirdest thing. Because he so needs them to just go along with it right now. Just yeah. don't get involved right now. But then he also offends Congress by saying, don't mess with this because you really don't have the power to do anything here. Yeah. So then they're like, oh, you're telling us we don't have the power? So do you want us to show you we have the power? Yesterday also the president uh, put forth the first steps to lift or to get Cuba taken off the terrorism list. There you go. There's uh, several – what is it? Iran, Sudan, Syria, and Cuba are on the terrorism list. But okay, and they're on the terrorism list for things they did thirty years ago because they were supporting terrorism. So we're going to try to shrink that list a bit. Now they're well, saying, I mean, Cuba. Come on. And now they're saying that over the last six months, but probably years, Cuba hasn't done anything. They can't afford to to know, do this. So and this is part of the right normalizing now. relations. Sure, that's good. And people are accusing Obama. Or they're going after Obama, and, and uh, people are like, "Why are they going after the president when he's waging peace?" He's you know, he's a, trying he's, to settle things with Iran. He's yeah. trying to settle things with Cuba, but he might be taking it a step too far for some people. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Republicans have not forgotten how President Obama in 2012 was able to successfully paint Mitt Romney as a silver spoon in the mouth private equity baron who could not relate to the concerns of everyday Americans. They can't understand that? No, they haven't forgotten that he okay, did that. Good. It says, in fact, they remember it so well that they might use the same tactic on Hillary Clinton. I according think to, yeah, I According think to Politico, GOP strategists aim to use her lucrative speaking fees, her ties to the Clinton Foundation, to show that she plays by her own set of rules and lives in a world of private planes, chauffeured vehicles, and million-dollar homes. I think there's going to be a disparity in what she says because she's trying to be a champion for the average person. And how, you know, how Wall Street is just the money still is only going to a certain percentage, but it just doesn't work when you make $150,000 a speech or whatever. No. That's hard. It's a hard sell. I, I, I don't know. But I think, I think it's, she has a it's huge the same for anybody. advantage, right. I think most of the candidates that run are living a life outside of normal America. Yeah. Thank, you know, thank heavens in a way. 
but at the same at the same point, you you kind of need someone who lives necessarily, I guess, lives that life because then they're going to have a job that has that kind of responsibility and well, they yeah, can run you don't a, want a big organization. An average Joe in the White House. No, you don't want a guy that just leaves. You know, by the time he's gone, he's left little ring marks from jo- right. Joe the Joe beer. the plumber might not be a good choice for no. the White House. You want, but then again, you don't want somebody that is just an uppity uppity can't relate to you. Absolutely. They got to be an average Joe that made it big. But Donald I Trump. <laughs> right, Donald That's Trump. Donald Trump. Sure. Holy cow, he's not an average Joe. Or do you want someone like a, a Mark Cuban? Because um, he's an average Joe. Yeah. He made it big and he owns a basketball team. And But see, too, I don't even think being a great businessman makes you a great president. No. Because it's a... That's why it's, it's it's hard to find someone who fits this mold. And when you yeah. find someone, there's always flaws. I think what would be great is if we could just build one. We have the technology. We can rebuild him. Mm. That would be fantastic. Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. The Yankees, right? Yeah. Suspended all of last year because of steroids. Little steroid problem. He currently sits at 655 home runs on his career. Yeah. 660 would tie him with Willie Mays for fourth all-time on the home run list. Asterisk. Is it? Yeah. You can't be suspended for a season for steroids and have a home run record and not have an asterisk. Is it legit? The Yankees media guide made no mention of his impending milestone as it was reviewed recently. See, they're they're self-asterisking, asterisking. And what many people feel is the reason is because when he hits 660, the Yankees have promised to pay him $6 million bonus. And they don't want to pay him because he sat out last year with steroids. Hey, you know that bonus thing we talked about? So you go, th- it's, you go through, and is this one of the biggest records in baseball, right? There are four yeah. guys all time that Huge. have hit 660 or more. Who He's, are they? Do you know their names? Uh, Barry Bonds. Yep. Hank Aaron. Uh-huh. Babe Ruth. Willie Mays. Interesting. Only one with a roid scandal. And uh, Barry Bonds came out yesterday. He says, I'm all in support of this. Let's, 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 let's celebrate let's A-Rod. Let's one more. So the Yankees are just trying to ignore the fact. Yeah, they don't want to go there. That A-Rod's closing in on this this big de- this um, this record, this historic record, because he cheated. Oh, my goodness. That's scary. What kind do you of, do? Kind of interesting there. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, see, now that's going to make Rod- Alex Rodriguez mad at, at his owners, at, the, at, at his, his boss. boss. Yeah. It's like, oh, my boss is such a liar. He said he'd give me $6 million bonus if I hit a home run record. Jeez. Stupid steroids. Hey, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Caroline Dowd Higgins will be joining us. She's going to be talking to us about bad bosses. You won't believe the percentage of people that uh, really are ready to leave their job or have left a job. Because of a bad boss. How about you? Is your boss impacting your desire to go to work? Is it impacting how you work? We'll be talking bad bosses and the bad boss blues up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Sixteen tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 tons. Mm. 
Is this not the song you sing every day you go to work? James just kind of waddles in, <laughs> whistling this song every day. Did you know a new Gallup poll study reveals that about 50% of the 7,200 adults they surveyed left a job just to get away from their manager? You know, we've all experienced times when we felt like a boss was being unfair or unreasonable, but how can we survive a bad boss and what are some tips in mending those relationships? With us today, we have Caroline Dowd-Higgins to answer these questions and more. She's a coach, an author, a public speaker. She has a best-selling book, This Is Not the Career I Ordered, which showcases action steps for career reinvention. And Caroline also hosts a podcast series called Your Working Life, which you can find on iTunes. Caroline, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you. Now, man, I didn't realize so many people were have been so negatively impacted by a boss that they'd have to quit. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, there's an old adage, people don't leave uh, bad companies, they leave bad bosses. That's so true. And it's a weird stat, too, because 70, what is it? 70% of our, our workforce is disengaged anyway. Yeah. And maybe it's the bosses to blame. I- it could be. I think that has a lot to do with it. But I believe that each and every one of us, whether we have a supportive boss or not, needs to take more control in that equation. Yeah. It's our it's our job, right? It's our life that's being impacted. And I guess that is taking control is leaving, but you don't always have to leave either, do you? I agree 100%. No. I think we, we need to be much more proactive and really take action, especially if there is a behavior that you might be able to change or better understand about your boss. I mean, and that's it. You've you, you got to understand them, Caroline. Ugh. Absolutely. But yeah. A jerk. And you know, what I find, <laughs> I find sometimes it's a communication gap, right? And yeah. you may not be able to, to change their jerk like behavior, but you may be able to understand them better and communicate with them better in a way that just makes the relationship smoother. What so when you get down to it Caroline then what makes the bad boss? What is the deal? Yeah, you know, it's a great question and I wish there was one simple answer, but what I would tell you is a, a great boss is someone that will be supportive and help you grow in your career and help groom you professionally. And I know a lot of people are saying, "Well, that's just not where I <laughs> Never am in seen my that. career." Right. right? Where where's that boss? Sign me up. So a couple of red flags, right? If, if you do not have a great uh, open communication line with your boss, think really seriously about how that might change. And the first thing that I say to clients or anybody that I work with is, how does your boss like to be communicated with, right? Are they an email person? Are they more verbal, right? Uh, are they big picture? Are they detail-oriented? And don't assume that the way you communicate is how they want to receive information. So, so that's true. a really important important first step. Because you could annoy them to death if you keep oh, yeah. sending them emails and they're not an email person. Right. And you might just not know that that's the hang up. So I would say the first thing, ask, how shall I communicate with you? What's the most effective way? And what's the best way for me to respond to you? It's such a simple question. And very rarely do we ask. You, in fact, in your article, one of your articles in the Huffington Post, because you're a blogger there, a contributor there, you actually say we might want to interview an, our new boss. 
Absolutely. You know, I do a lot of interview coaching for people that are interviewing for new roles. And I always say, what are the questions you're going to ask your prospective boss? And most folks look at me very quizzically. What? You know, I can ask my boss a question? Absolutely. And I say, ask about their leadership style, right? Tell me about your leadership style or tell me about a person that you've mentored in the organization. How do you like to be communicated with, right? And those are very poignant questions. And if your boss isn't your prospective boss isn't comfortable asking, that's a red flag. This is a person you are going to have potentially a long professional relationship with you. And it's it's essential to get that information in advance. What, What else could we ask? What else should we be asking these new bosses? I would also say, you know, what are your goals for the team and this role? A favorite question is, what does success look like for you? And how do you approach mentoring or sponsoring team members? And specifically, this role, how will you encourage my professional development if I'm lucky enough to be offered an opportunity here? What do you do, Caroline? Again, we're talking with Caroline Dowd Higgins. Go to her website, carolinedowdhiggins.com. Great source of ideas and just her blog, her coaching ideas. But what am I supposed to do, Caroline, when um, I know that I am more skilled, more tooled, more advanced? I know I have more going for me than my boss. How do I not – especially as as you're sitting here talking about this interview, I'm thinking, what if you just know? You've been there longer. You know what you're doing. It was kind of a weird scenario how this person became the boss. What do I do to get – I totally – that happens. As much as you try, sometimes you're just in a situation where you, you out-qualify your boss. Yeah. And that happens. And I would say own that opportunity to start really stealthily looking for new, new jobs, right, new career paths. That's okay. You can grow out of your boss. You can also grow out of an organization and right. just say, you know what, I've reached my potential and there's no room for me to grow. And it's not just about salary, although that certainly is part of it. You know, it's finding challenging and stimulating tasks that engage you and make you excited to come to work. Because as you mentioned, 70% of people out there are not happy. Mm-mm. It's not a good number. Well, and again, if, if you be if you react to your boss and become you know you just start phoning it in you're no longer working you're no longer doing your job you're no longer growing it you no longer have the passion that's you still have 20 years or whatever that you've got to work absolutely yeah and i would encourage anyone listening don't assume that your boss is going to be your career coach right? right their role in life is not to grow you in your organization they're working hard we hope right yeah. and if you're not on fire if there are if you're not the problem child in the office right they're probably going to leave you alone and let you do your thing <laughs> That's right. so find mentors find sponsors beyond your boss whether they are in your organization or outside who can help groom you and grow you so don't assume that your boss is going to take on that that role Role. That's such a – I mean really they're – unless you're a problem, they kind of want you to be independent. They don't exactly. want to have to lead you along. Now, some love probably mentoring, but if that's some not do. your boss, then right. you've got to find one that does. Right. And remember, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad boss. Mm-mm. They've chosen you because they want you to be there for a good long time and you're rocking it. You know, you're doing a great job. So why would they promote you out? Yeah, that's right. I'm not <laughs> going to get rid you. of my good people. Right, right. So – Remember, put yourself in his or her place and say, okay, they are really comfortable because I'm doing such a great job. But if that doesn't meet your 
future goals, then you need to look elsewhere. Mm. Right? Don't get stuck in that status quo if, if that doesn't bring value to, to your professional world. It's so true. And it really is – it's kind of a dance, right? You, oh, yeah. You, you have to know how to play up. And some people play up really well or some play down really well, but they don't play laterally in the organization. Yeah. You've got to learn to yeah. play on all levels. You do, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. I believe in the term managing up, and as you said, you can manage up and yeah. over and down, you know, and perhaps you're not the big boss, but you do supervise other people. Encourage the people whom you supervise to manage up to you, because if your boss doesn't know how incredible you are and what you're achieving on a regular base, basis, don't wait for that once-a-year performance review, oh. if you even have it, right? Yeah. Some organizations don't do it that regularly. How do they know? How do they know that you're just nailing it. So with humble confidence, send them an email once a month and say, look, this doesn't require a conversation or even a response, but I want you to know what I'm working on, what I'm doing really well, and what my stretch goals are. Yeah. And, and then and see if they'll partner with you on that, then that'll be great. If not, there's other people in the organization that, that'll partner with you. I mean, you've got, you've got resources, Exactly. And, and you nailed it. You know, there are other people that will partner with you. So remember, it's not just about your boss. Manage up to other people. Be seen and heard. And I get it. People feel awkward about bragging. And I don't like the term bragging, but I do like the term humble confidence. You work hard and you've earned what you have achieved. So if you approach it from a humble confidence standpoint, you can really authentically talk about what you do well. And when other people know that, then you're recruitable. Yeah. Then you're Promotable. You need to be seen and heard. Such good advice. Caroline, it's almost like you do this for a living. <laughs> it's almost like that, Matt. It's the and weirdest thing. <laughs> We're going to take a break. Come back. Uh, have more here with Caroline Dowd Higgins. Go to her website, carolinedowdhiggins.com. Uh, great information there just about everything she's doing in her coaching, but also just in, in her podcast and in her book. This is not the career I ordered empowering strategi- uh, or strategies uh, for women. We're going to talk more about all of this when we come back. Bad bosses, folks, they happen, but it doesn't mean you have to just suffer through it. More with uh, Caroline Dowd-Higgins right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Aren't you grateful you're not working in the coal mine? <laughs> That's such a good tune. It could be worse, folks. You could be working in the coal mine, just chipping away. <laughs> you can hear the little chip. Welcome back to the program. This is the Matt Townsend Show, where we try to give you the tools, the ideas, the rules, everything you need in life to grow a healthier, happier life. Today, we are talking with Caroline Dowd Higgins from carolinedowdhiggins.com. She's an author, a blogger. She's a uh, a Huffington Post contributor as well. And uh, she has her own podcast as well, if you look it up on iTunes. One of the things that, um, by the way, the name of her podcast is Your Working Life. And we're, we're picking her brain on how to handle a difficult boss. You know, they happen, folks, but uh, you suffering, that's totally up to you. Caroline Dowd Higgins, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Great to have you. So, you know, we've got to know how to understand our boss, figure out how they want us to kind of relate to them, see if they can mentor us, and if not, you know, be able to to find other leaders. What else could I do if I'm dealing, just me personally, how do I handle my psyche, my day in, my day out when I have a boss that I just don't jive with? Well, the first thing I want to share is that you need to be empowered and remember that your boss is not a mind reader. And I know even from personal experience, sometimes I, I have been frustrated throughout my career life thinking that my boss should know what's in my brain. So be proactive, talk to them, and become a solution provider, right? If there are issues in your work environment, walk in with solutions. And uh, let me back up a little too. Never just walk in, right? Create an opportunity for a calendared appointment so it isn't a drive-by. So they are forced to see and hear you and honor you uh, during that scheduled time. So don't assume that your boss knows exactly what you're thinking. That's so true. I mean, how many times? Oh, well, there he is. I'll just talk to him right now. Exactly. I've done that. I'm guilty of that. Yeah, Yeah. and that can be water cooler chit chat. But if there's something really important, it deserves his or her full attention as well as yours. I've I've caught my boss on the way to the restroom, talked to him for 20 minutes. He was then interrupted by somebody else and then went back to his office, never making it to the restroom. Never making it to the restroom, yeah. And who knows what he retained. Well, yeah. Because so much happened. (laughs) Well, and and I'm sitting there thinking. Did he really need to go to the restroom? <laughs> How did he just let that happen? Break. Yeah, yeah. It's true though. It's totally true. So, But you're also saying take solutions. A lot of bosses aren't going to want to just have somebody sitting there talking about all the problems. Yes, and, and a boss really wants someone that comes to the table with great ideas. Now, remember, all of your ideas may not be implemented. I supervise uh, several people in my current role, and the, the people that I want to really engage with and promote and grow and groom are the people that come to the table with creative ideas to solve problems because they make my job as a boss easier. Aren't they a breath of fresh air? Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. Complaining is therapeutic. Do it at home in the privacy of your own home, but come to the table at work with not complaints, but solutions. In your Huffington Post article, you said, get, don't get angry, get active. Is that what you mean? Bring solutions, bring ideas. I Get do, busy. And, and, and there is an opportunity for us to vent. I fully believe in the cathartic uh, you know, expression of emotion, but take the high road. Don't do it at work, right? Do yeah. it in private. Vent, talk to friends and loved ones, trusted people that you can say, look, this is driving me crazy, and then figure out what's my action plan, right? Because channel that energy and use it again, to create a solution. It's a better use of your time and your energy. It's precious. When you say work your way out of a job, what do you mean? That seems dangerous because a lot of people, let's not be seen. Let's not make a lot of noise here. I know. I know. And I think we need to have a very uh, strong culture shift in that. And, And I will say it is out of the comfort zone of many people to be able to talk about what they do well, right? Many of of us uh, experience what we call imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome is when we attribute success to luck, being in the right place at the right time, or wow, this was a team effort. You need to own with, with humble confidence what you've worked so hard to achieve. And what I mean by working your way out of a job is tell your boss what you're accomplishing. Share those stretch goals. Be clear that you don't need to respond to this. I call it a managing up email, but be seen and heard so you're promotable. 
or recruitable. And if you're a rock star and you're just doing extraordinary things for your company or your organization, if your boss doesn't notice it, make sure you're visible so somebody else notices it. Boy, that imposter syndrome, that is a big deal. If you don't believe you you know, have the chops, if you don't believe you're bringing the goods, then who else should? And you're also – if you're not gathering the data because you're too embarrassed about the data and you don't want to look like you're just blowing your own horn or whatever, it's a big deal. You're going to just – you're going to actually probably fall to the next loudest person that will. Exactly right. And I'm so glad that you said the next loudest person because it might not be in your personality to be the loud one, right? right? So you can do it in a variety of ways. Maybe you're more introspective. Maybe you're more reserved and shy. You can do this in writing, right? You can be seen and heard, in air quotes, by communicating with someone in writing. So it's not as if you always have to be out there talking about what you do well, although I do believe that that is a great way to communicate. Write a little memo. Share with your boss what you're doing. Share with your boss's boss. Make sure your colleagues know. There should be a buzz about you. Mm. And as I said, if you're not recruitable in your current organization or promotable, be sure that others in the outside, uh, on the outside of your organization are aware of what you do. That's how you work your way out of a job. It's so true. I, um, I, I worked in a really big organization, You know, did everything I could to, to kind of work my way up through it. But I ended up leaving the company, starting my own thing, growing my own identity, getting my own vision, and then all of a sudden that old company comes back and they want more of me. They want – and, and yeah. they, they actually said, you know, you never would have had these opportunities if you had just stayed in the company yep. because they, they yep. don't notice that. They don't always pay attention to the insiders. They, they paid attention to me because I had a following. Right. So you always talk and about it, get a following. Absolutely. And, you know, you really uh, highlighted something that is so classic. Quite often people leave an organization and then are recruited back to the organization they left because it gives them a chance to change their professional persona, to grow and develop in different directions, and then they're recruited back. So that alumni philosophy of recruiting back talent that was in the ranks at one time is very common. I see that. And really it it might be the fastest way to create progress is – out and then in again. But you've, I, I also noticed there's a lot of people that don't have a tolerance for that, right? I mean, they're, they don't, they're afraid of the risk of this. They'd rather kind of just sit in and play their part. Yes. And I believe we're in a day and age right now that we all need to be risk takers. Now, I'm not a gambler. I'll be very clear yeah. about that. But I am a risk taker. And the difference is a calculated risk. And trying a new opportunity can lead to things that you never imagined. And people are moving around a lot in their careers now, much differently than they did even five years or 10 years ago, because companies, organizations are not nearly as loyal mm. to the employee as they have been in the past. So you've got to be a free agent and you've got to look out for yourself. And and the cool thing about it, though, too, is you you can maybe make double or triple because now you're kind of consulting in a variety of different ways or – I mean there's just – there's no one way to do it anymore, right? Exactly. Cut it any way you want to. You can, absolutely. The the pie can be sliced and diced in so many different ways. And to add to that, Matt, I find that sometimes people hit a financial ceiling in their organization because they're stuck in what I will call an HR rut. They're in a particular classification or a particular rank. And when they leave that organization, they can come in and jump a few ranks, right? So they're stuck in that silo. And quite often, taking that risk and trying something else will enable you to have more flexibility 
at the new organization, yeah. and then the the returning organization. If you choose to come back a few years later, it, it might. That's an interesting point. It might be the the system. So the very systems that keep organizations running, like an HR system, might be part of the rut you're in because you Absolutely. are now you're a level two D. And uh-huh. once you're a 2D, you're always a 2D you're in that company. Yeah, you're stamped. And, you know, let's let's talk about the HR people, right? They're, they're good people who yeah. presumably are looking out for you. But the premise of a really savvy HR person, when you look at it through a business lens, is to have the most talented person in that role for the least amount of money. Right. Their job, right? That's the reality of it. Yeah. Their job is to make it make the wheel turn, right, and have it be a fiscal sound engine in economic terms. Yeah. So they want to get the best person for the least amount of money. And it's so really which is which is what decides you, right? So so if I'm in an eight and I am okay with that. Just let me kind of grow up in the company. Let me mm-hmm. stay there. Let me fill that role and just be okay with all of that. If you're okay with that, then at least bring a good attitude and bring I think you call it bring your own weather. Control yes. the weather. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because you got yeah. what else are you going to do if if you're going to just be miserable? Exactly. Do something different, exactly. but if not, change your weather. Yeah, and you know we've all experienced when the boss, the big boss, is having a bad day. <laughs> so literally, this the skies get cloudy and you just feel the weather change. Yeah. The proverbial weather in the department, in the building, in the organization. Right? And if he or she is having a happy day clear skies, right? It changes the mood in the building. And I find that so fascinating. So for all the leaders out there listening, remember how significantly you impact everyone in your organization, whether or not you have a personal relationship or uh, a leadership or a supervisory relationship with them, your mood impacts everyone. It is so true. And and really, I mean, it's everybody's mood. If you sit down to somebody in the stall or the cubicle next to you mm-hmm. and they're just kind of a life suck. I don't know how yep. else to put it. Yeah, um, energy suck. They're yep. Eeyore. Uh, <laughs> then it's it's exhausting. And sometimes it, it might just simply be – it might not even be your boss or your job. It just might be – your neighbor. It might be yeah, it might be right. anything. It might be the right. time of the, the day that you work. It might right. be the shift, whatever. I, I always tell people, check your baggage at the door, right? Or check your baggage at the gate. We're human and we all have life issues, right? There's an ebb and flow of what's working and what's not in our lives. That's just the nature of being human. But check your baggage at the door and when you come into your work environment, choose to have a good day or a great day. It's healthier for you. It's going to be more productive for you and you're Food is infectious to your colleagues. Mm, so true. Again, we're talking with Caroline Dowd Higgins um, from the website. If you go to her website, carolinedowdhiggins.com. She also has a, a podcast, Your Working Life, which you can find on iTunes. And if you go to Huffington Post or just Google Carolyn, Caroline Dowd Higgins, you can get a ton of articles plus a book. Is, is that – is a lot of this information that you're talking about, is it in your book, Caroline? It is, yeah. I went through a major career change, which is what encouraged me to uh, write the book. And yes, I believe in sharing great wisdom. My goal in life is to collect ideas and action steps from uh, people with whom I work and people that I have learned from in addition to my career coaching wisdom and pay it forward to help all of you listening because our careers don't have to be hard. I I believe in my personal philosophy, which is enjoy your career, love your life. Oh, I love that. And really, that's what it's about. If if you're going to spend all of this time working, you may as well enjoy it and change lives as you do it. 
Absolutely. And, and you have so much more control than you're using on a regular basis. So take back your control and use it. Beautiful. Caroline Dowd Higgins, so appreciate you. And uh, good luck. We're going to have to have you back. You're, you're just, you make my job so easy. Well, I would be delighted, Matt. Thank you for your time for today. For sure. Thank you. Again, go to her website, carolinedowdhiggins.com. Go check out the book, This Is Not the Career I Ordered. Good stuff, my friends. It's your, it's your life, right? It's your life. Bring it. Get your life together. Quit wanting your boss or everyone else to either make your day or break your day or make it or break it and make it better or worse. It's up to you, folks. <sighs> Life's tough. But uh, when we take it by the reins, we might be able to lead it somewhere. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion about jobs and bosses right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. So true about our bosses. Have you guys had, you know, a really incredible boss? I mean, other than, obviously, you're, you're the ones you've got now. I mean, I know James. James can't leave because he's got such a great work environment. Right, James? Yeah. You were kind of slow to pick up on that. Why did you you kind of wait, wait, gave okay. me bug eyes? Sorry, just, ask me again. Were you not listening? You know, you can ask me again. James has is he he doesn't want to leave because his work environment. You, so... You're so right. You're so right. I, I mean, I could finish that. Yeah, that seems I a could little. Finish your sentence. That seems fake. Almost. It's like it's almost like it's you're faking it. No, I could I could I never swear... leave this place because it's so great. See, I don't know. Does that feel does that feel sincere to you, Terry? A little forced. A little it forced feels there. a little yeah. forced. We need to have a little. Meeting. Let's have a meeting about that. A little fake emotion. I don't know. Yeah. Hillary Clinton announcement video type feel. Well, let's go to Chipotle. Yeah, boss. You're very politician of you. I love Chipotle. <laughs> See, right there. Are we going to Chipotle? <laughs> I love Chipotle. I had I had the best boss ever. By the way, with. A really high turnover rate. See, so somebody they like what? But my first boss, really out of college, in a you know a real kind of job, he he sat me down. He said, "Look, what do you want out of this company?" And I was kind of gutsy enough to say, "Honestly, I don't want to be in your department." Wow. Because I wanted to be in another department. Right. I wanted to be a speaker, right? And he looked at me when I said that and he's like, okay, because it took like five interviews to get a job. He said, okay, so you want to be in that department? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, how soon do you want to be in that department? So he started negotiating what my win was. He wanted to figure out what my win was to be in this organization. And I said, well, I'd like to be in that department because that was the department that would get me the next department to get me to where I wanted to be. And he goes, okay. He said, what if I told you I could get you – into that department. I'm like, I'd love it. He goes, how soon would you like to get there? And I'm like, how about a month? And he's like, oh, okay, how about three? He 
said, so if I can get you that, if I can get you into that department in three months, I mean, you'd have to interview, but I could get you an interview, and they they'll take my recommendation. Um, let me tell you what I need from you. So then he then now knew what I wanted, and when I wanted it, and then he then sat there and told me everything he needed from me. So he had my win, and I then found out from him he needed me to me to be a top producer, doing the job we were doing. Following the rules, not breaking any rules, not having legitimate sales, all these different things. And if he, if I did that – and he even gave me the numbers. He goes, I need you to be the number one salesperson for the first month of anybody that's ever been here. And I'm like, how hard could that be? And second month, I need you to be the number one salesperson for our second month of, any, of all time and best third month. And here are the numbers. And here's what you can use and here's the people and the resources and he gave me – he lied, he laid everything out for me. And and then he basically – it was about three to four months after that, my boss was carrying my my boxes into my next job, happy as ever. So he had the highest turnover rate because everybody that would come into his department, nobody really wanted to end up there. A few did. So he'd keep them there. He'd make them managers. Some wanted – but some didn't want to move on. Some just wanted a really good title because they needed that on their resume. Some just wanted freedom to go to school. Some wanted – everyone wanted something different. But he'd find out what we wanted and then he did everything he could to make it happen. Was this that timeshare vacation thing you were working for? No. Oh, sorry. This was selling donuts on the street corner. No. The f- crazy thing about it though, four months I was in his department. Now, here's the coolest thing. When that boss was moving homes, he sent out an email to everybody saying, hey, I'm moving. Love to have help if any of you need could come help me. And he had about 16 of his past employees show up to move him. Wow. How many of you could get 16 of your family members? I mean you could probably get your current neighbors to move you out. He had 16 past coworkers because they were so devoted to him because he helped them get where they wanted to be. So he fostered loyalty and he had the highest sales rate. He had the highest growth. He had continued, continued growth because he just had all these people that were jazzed and motivated. Best manager I've ever seen. And then yeah. when you have, like you said, high turnover, yeah. people find out that it's turnover for success yeah. and he helped That's them. exactly right. So then normally, they're motivated to impress him. See, so. normally HR would hate that. So Abs- they would yeah. come talk to him, hey, what's with the high turnover? But when you also have, you know – he, it seemed like he just accepted the fact that the the job he was supervising wasn't the greatest right. job in the world. Right, and, and he also so what he became is like the incubator for the company. Yeah. So he he, he every he could find talent. All the talent would go through that department, and then they loved it because he'd train the talent up, and then he, they they'd move us on to different departments. Hmm. So he actually fulfilled an amazing role. He also had a ton of freedom. I mean, he was the best manager I've ever seen. Now, interestingly, no one else in the company I have ever I had ever seen. None of my other bosses came anywhere close to that because they just didn't have it. They, he wasn't there to just use us. He was there to create a mutual, mutually beneficial agreement. And the rest of the managers sometimes it wasn't about mutual beneficial. So, you know, it's a hard job. But if you if you want loyalty, if you want you know, that, now imagine that you've got to go do that. So that's your job, Terry. You've got to go take a bunch of producers and make sure they all produce and like you, and get the job done, and not you know 
not slash your tires. Right. Well, part of not slashing my tires is not letting them know what I drive. Oh, but I told them. You did? Yeah. What'd you do that for? Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be important for the team to know. Well, one okay. of them went and rolled your window down the other day. Is that what that, that yeah. I was wondering how that happened. It was weird. Totally weird. So, bosses, come on. Again, we gotta, we've got it good here. Don pretty much just stays away from us. I mean, unless we do something really wrong. I've found that to be the best kind of boss. Yeah. They, they let you do your job until you mess up. Yeah. They, and then they come in and point it out. Except, you know what else is weird? HR hangs out in my office a lot. I saw that yesterday. I don't know why. You're nice to talk to. Well, but I'm scared. Are they, are they getting free sessions, counseling? No, I think it's just they're trying to figure me out. They constantly draw attention to the point that you get up at an early hour of the day. I know. They're like worried about me. They're like, how do you do this every they day? Must, are you tired? They must yes, listen I'm to my tired. show and, and find <laughs> out that I'm exhausted. But it's like they're worried. It's like I feel like they're – it's wonderful. They're like parenting me. In fact, one of them said, you need a nap. Here's – go to our nap room. There's a nap room? I can't tell this, you about This building it. literally has everything. I know. Yeah, I can't tell you. It's got an ice machine? I know. I can't tell you where the nap room is because okay. it's – More of an executive level. It's kind I of know. an executive thing. I know. It's a talent and an executive level thing. Why did you look at me that way, James? Don't be rude. No, it's you rolled, I, you, you rolled your you rolled your right eye. Your right eye rolled. Your left that, that's eye just changed. my lazy eye. It <laughs> had nothing to do with this. I'm oh, sorry. So it didn't roll. It just kind of drifted. <laughs> I've actually had people do that in a workshop once. I'm like, "Hey, look your partner in the eye, in the eyes." And and this one guy yells, "Which eye?" Cuz she did have a lazy eye. Ouch. Usually you don't want to point that out. No, you don't point that out, especially in a very intimate moment in the workshop where we're going to try to get connected. Make that a rule for you. By the way, also if you're a boss, don't make fun of that either. Um, sorry, James, for pointing that out. Thanks. We're going to take a break, my friends. Uh, again, this is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you uh, get a leg up in life. To find the good is our goal. We'll be right back after this break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to another hour of information, education, and maybe even a laugh or two. We can't guarantee it, but we will probably be talking about James and his wedding, so that's always good for a laugh or two, isn't it, James? I guess so. Your upcoming nuptials. I didn't think it was funny. I, and it seems like you've talked about it quite a bit. I know. I don't know if there's much more to discuss. Believe me, there's a ton of laughs left in that little wedding. Speaking of which, though, we did get all the invitations mailed out yesterday. Okay, so everybody in listener land, you should be getting your invitation to the Birds All Wedding uh, sometime in the next probably two or three days. Yeah, maybe. It, it, if it was, they don't get a message or if they don't get uh, an invitation 
Should they just email you? What's your email? Well, it's probably a problem with the postal service. Uh, so they should probably send a letter to their senator. You're blaming the postal workers of America. Yes. Send a letter to your senator and telling him that there needs to be changes. That they they did not receive their invitation to yeah. the millennial wedding. Yes. That's the course of action I would suggest if you don't get your invitation. Or uh, what's your email? We just send them to your email. Uh, my email is matt.townsend at byuradio.org. Forward slash. Forward slash. Dot com. Wedding of the millennium. Okay. There you have it. Yep. I have a feeling that email's not going to work. It's a long <laughs> Yeah. It's a very, very long email. We've got a great uh, show coming up for you today. Uh, by the way, Pulitzer Prize winning author will be joining us. You know, that's something you don't just get to drop all the time. But uh, Charles Doe, uh, Duhigg will be joining us. He um, is going to talk to us about habits. Really, there's some awesome uh, research he's done on habits. And, you know, this is the there's, – there's some people that are just really good at making a habit and making it stick. And then there's others that don't. So he's going to talk about those that do and the difference between maybe like an Olympic swimmer like Michael Phelps or Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz or civil rights hero Martin Luther King, what they do versus the rest of us. Maybe we do something different when it comes to forming a habit. I can form a bad habit instantly. I enjoy those. I do too. But by the way, my little fitness band on my wrist, it's changing my life. For the better? For the better. Oh, good. I'm pretty much – I've pretty much averaged about 10,000 steps a day up uh, from 1,000 steps – (laughs) <laughs> and I wouldn't even call some of them steps. Some of them would just be a leg, one leg step, one leg drag, a leg drag step, which I do about a thousand of those. I used to. Now I do ten thousand actual steps. Hmm. I'm exercising every day. I've lost hundreds of pounds. I can tell. Can you? <laughs> You're basically nothing. <laughs> my now. clothes are hanging on me. <laughs> I eat healthier. I now track all of my food. But here's the funny thing: I always knew I needed to track my food. I mm-hmm. always knew that. I always knew I needed to drink more water. Knew that. I, I knew all of this. But because I have this fitness band that vibrates every hour on my wrist, it's become my favorite new you know, app. I no longer play Deer Hunter 2014. Thank you, James. No longer play that. I no longer play uh, one, 10, 10. What is it? 10, 10. 10, 10. I don't play 10. Thank you again, James. Those are the sound effects for both of those my favorite apps. So now what I play is the Matt Townsend fitness game. I would caution you. That's good. That's good sound effect. I would caution you on how much you do play your game. Which game? Any game. The Matt Townsend health fitness challenge. How could I play that too much? A 29-year-old California man visited an orthopedic surgeon's office with a torn tendon received from overindulging in his love for Candy Crush Saga. Really? He had a – he had – he tore – A thumb tendon. Oh, are you kidding? He's out forever. And then, of course, the question is, what does it take to do this? Reporting this week in the Journal of uh, Internal Medicine, the doctors say he played Candy Crush Saga all day on his smartphone, <laughs> six to eight weeks straight. Oh, boy. With his left hand. Yeah. While be- relying on his right hand for other tasks. Eating Cheetos, uh, 
making a burrito in the microwave. The man was unable to use his left thumb but reported no pain when he played the game. <laughs> I feel nothing, man. I'm numb. The doctors conclude that the potential for video games to reduce pain perception raises clinical and social considerations about excessive use, abuse, and addiction. So there's the physical problem, but now there's like possibly a mental issue where he's able to just ignore the pain completely yeah. because he wants that satisfaction of playing the game. See, I think he emphasized too much of the crush and too little of the candy, right? Could he, be. He crushed everything, even his sense of feelings. We'll talk about that, by the way, in the next hour. See, that's why we've got to watch our emotions because they're there to tell us. Like his emotions had to have been telling him, hey, loser man, get a life. <laughs> Put the game away for crying out loud. I said like the tendon in his left thumb yeah, and then also his index finger and then his middle finger were all messed up. Like atrophy. He couldn't like function completely. They had to go in and fix his hand. That's like how many 12 hours or whatever of candy crush a day? All day for six to eight weeks. That sounds like a James Birdsall crush. That Every was waking hour. Crazy so be careful when you're talking about health apps and – yeah, but see, but if I was doing that much and it was all about, you know, my health, that, you know, I wouldn't be tearing my tendons up. I'd no. probably just be ripped. Well. My abs wouldn't flow in the wind. Flutter. Right? Oh, that's great. I like the new sound effect for my new app, the Matt Townsend Health Fitness app. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah. The it. heavens are singing because you are... That's it. Have that new app. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. Keep that up, James. Um, all right. So don't overdo Candy Crush or you'll blow a tendon. You ever worry about the TSA at the airports? We've talked about yeah. the TSA quite a bit. Every day. There were concerns when they had those full body scans. I didn't mind that. That those x-rays would be used for other purposes. Yeah. They'd, yeah, they'd end up on the internet. Yeah. And they said, "There's no way that could possibly That's happen. That's not going to happen. There's no way that the TSA, We're the federal could, government, would possibly abuse their their position of influence to, right. for whatever reason. Apparently, that's not necessarily the case. Uh oh. Two TSA screeners at Denver Airport have been fired after they were caught using the body scanner to falsely flag attractive passengers for extra screening. Hey, come here, lady. You look pretty nice. You're going to come over here for a special screening. Or in this case, further pat downs." Oh, mercy. Yeah. It took three months for the TSA to take disciplinary action after it learned about this misconduct. A colleague of one of the fired agents said that he told her that when a male finds uh, – that when she finds a male attractive, comes to the screening uh, machine, he'll let her know so she can come over and check him out. Are you kidding? You know, exactly what they said wouldn't happen. Yeah. Happened. That's just creepy. So they've been fired and new I mean, scanners are supposed to If you're going to do that, do it for people that seem lonely. That don't seem to have a chance at life. Have them have a special screening where they just get a hug at the end. Yeah. Why are we – I thought we were supposed to be protecting our homeland. We are. But when you just stand in one place for however many hours a day, See, then you start looking at your, your office equipment like, wait, I can use this for a different purpose. Plus, I got to get home to do my candy crush. <laughs> I'm kind of can. He's got, you know, ligament damage because of Candy Crush. Oh, that is just offensive. We talked before about the cheating scandal in Georgia yeah. on their standardized tests. Mm -hmm. The teachers were fixing answers to make the scores look better to help their career and to just push the kids on. Hey, it's basically. a win-win. After three former teachers in Atlanta, they were sentenced Tuesday to seven years in prison. 
After being convicted of conspiracy to cheat on standardized tests as far back as 2005, they were allegedly motivated by the promise of bonuses and pressure to meet federal and local testing standards. Two additional Mm -hmm. ex-teachers agreed to plea deals, and five other convicted uh, cheaters were given sentences ranging from one year to seven years. Some of the teachers refused to admit that they they did this, and so the judge threw the book at them. Well, what's so interesting is – so what's the – people are cheating all the time. Yes. So what's the crime? The crime is the teachers, the, even the, even to the point of going into the test, changing answers so the kids would get yes. a higher score. But so that broke a law? There's a law about cheating in school? To the point where you're just pushing kids along. I know, but hello, so you, that's been happening for years. Well, I know, but the, it, it, they caught them doing it. That's one okay. thing. And the other thing is that there's bonuses involved, federal oh. grants involved. Okay. You're getting your boss off your back because, look, my numbers are up. You're keeping your job because your numbers are up, and you're getting bonuses. Yeah, but like somebody that does that in any other job would just be fired. Yeah. But they wouldn't end up going to court and having a judge throw the book at them. Because it's teachers and because the federal government and there's money involved, it goes, ends up in court. They yeah. actually went after statutes of almost like a racketeering situation. Yeah, I bet it was a racket, wasn't it? Because it was organized. Wait till the mafia figures out that you can make money on cheating. That's going to be crazy. Hey, folks, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into the power of habit. Do you feel like you're a, a very effective habit setter? Are you one who can you know, put a habit in place and, and stick to the task? got a great expert coming up. In fact, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Charles Duhigg, will be joining us, author of the book, The Power of Habit. He's going to walk us through, uh, you know, the pattern of creating a healthy habit that will last and talk about some of the research he's been doing and uh, giving us just a little leg up, hopefully, in some habit making. We all need better habits one place or another. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back talking habits after the break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's a funny thing that happens to us each New Year's. I'm sure you've had it happen to you. You start out with this incredible New Year's resolution. Uh, maybe you're going to create this wonderful new habit that uh, is going to change your life forever. You know, going to the gym, eating healthier, all those things. But about a month or two later, maybe sometimes around tax time, uh, you know, in fact, today, happy tax day. We haven't even gotten into that. Uh, all of a sudden, you you realize that you don't actually have a habit yet. It hasn't stuck. You're no longer exercising. You're no longer doing that that favorite goal of yours. And your doughy-eyed dreams kind of fade away. So how do we make a habit stick? And sometimes how do we break the habit that might be stopping us from uh, making the changes we need to change? We found a great uh, resource that, that can help us with this. Charles Duhigg is joining us. He's the author of the New York Times. Uh, he's a New York Times reporter and the author of a recently published book called The Power of Habit. He also was uh, one of the authors of a series for the Times called The Eye Economy and won a Pulitzer Prize there for explanatory reporting in 2013. We so appreciate him being here. He's the author again of the book The Power of Habit. 
uh, Charles Duhigg. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I love this book. I love – I'm a big habit guy but not great at doing it. I, I seem to have a lot of habits, Charles, that need to be broken and I, I need your help. So you've done some research on it. And uh, by the way, how did you get into talking about habits? Well, so I first got interested in this about a decade ago when I was a reporter in Iraq. Um, I went down to a, to a city named Kufa, which is about an hour south of Baghdad, and met an army major there who had been been sent there to stop riots from happening. And the way he did that is that he removed the food vendors from the plazas around some of the the, uh, the important mosques in Kufa. Huh. And And when he did that, what he found was that um, because it takes a long time for a riot to develop, when people would get hungry, they would normally eat from these food vendors. And once the food <laughs> vendors were gone, people would go home. And as a result, they, um, they, they not a, the crowd never got big enough to break into a riot. They didn't have and the energy sort of, to fight. Interesting. Exactly. He explained this in terms of habits. And so I thought that was really interesting, and I started researching it when I came back to the U.S., what a great idea. I mean, really, it is a habit. Even a habit of rioting has to be fueled by a habit of eating. That's right. And and what we've learned is that we're actually living through this golden age of understanding the neurology of habit formation. And that's what well, you did, though. You, you went into neuro, neurology and neuroscience, right, to figure more out about this. That's exactly right. And And in particular, what we know is that is that every habit sort of follows the same basic neurological structure. There's, a, there's three parts to it. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. And that reward is how your brain learns to latch on to that behavior, to make it automatic. Huh. And so the key to changing habits or creating new habits is understanding what those cues and routines and rewards are. Interesting. So explain the cue. Is the cue like a trigger? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So a cue can be like a, a certain time of day or a particular person or a cer- walking by a certain place, uh, a particular emotion you feel. Um, you know, for instance, I think everyone's had that experience where you've had, you've had breakfast and you're not hungry and then you get to work and you walk past the break room and you see a box of donuts there yeah. and suddenly you're craving a donut, right? You're craving that sugar. And, and that's because your brain sees that cue of the box and begins anticipating a reward. Interesting. And that's what drives the craving. I know in the book, or at least on your video online, you talked about your cookie habit, where at lunch you'd go up and grab a cookie from the cafeteria, and then your wife, you know, after months of this, started commenting on your weight gain. Yeah, well, exactly. So I sort of had this, this, this habit myself and, and decided that one of the things that I wanted to do was to try and change it. And so when I talked to, to researchers, I would actually ask them um, that whether it would be possible to, for me to change the, the, the habit. And one of the things that they suggested is, well, first of all, figure out what the cue is. So every day I would sort of sit down and I would write when this craving struck. You know? yeah. And it turned out that it was usually about you know, 3.15 to 3.45 in the afternoon that I would crave a, a cookie upstairs in, in the cafeteria. And so I figured out what that was, and then I needed to figure out what the reward was. And I was t- when I was talking to the researchers, they sa- I said, oh, I think that would be easy, right? The reward is a cookie. They <laughs> a taste really good. chocolate chip, right. Yeah. But what they said was, look, a, a reward is actually like it's, – it's a, like a cookie is like a bundle of different rewards, right? Rewards are very, very complicated and hard to understand. So is the reward that I'm hungry and this is satisfying hunger, in which case an apple should work just as well? Huh. 
or that I need a burst of energy from the sugar, in which case a cup of coffee should do the trick, or just that I need like a break from work, yeah. in which case getting up and taking a walk around the block should, uh, should do it. And so every day I would basically kind of experiment. One day I had an apple, the next day I had a cup of coffee, the next day I went for a walk around the block. What I figured out was that when I was going up to the cafeteria to get a cookie, I was also seeing my friends up there. And usually I'd buy the cookie and then sit down and like chat for 20 minutes or yeah. so. And it was actually the socialization that was the reward. Oh, that's, that's so what real. Was driving my habit. I do the so same once thing. I knew what the, yeah, once I knew what the cue was, that it's a certain time of day, and I knew what the reward was, it's this socialization, then I could restructure the habit. Right now, every day at about 3.30, I stand up from my desk, and I look for someone to go gossip with, and we gossip for 15 or 20 minutes, and then I go back to my desk, and the cookie urge is totally gone. Well, or if you wanted to just grow the social habit, you could still go up at the same time and just take an apple. Right, exactly, exactly. The, the the point being that once you know, once you what understand the habit, you have power over changing it. See, it's so it's such a great um, you know cycle or or pattern because the rest of us just think, come on, Charles, show some character, you loser. You know, we think it's about your integrity. You know, sometimes habits become like about your character when it's really. So much more complicated. It's about cues. It's about rewards. It's about routines. It's, it's That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the thing that, to keep in mind is everyone has habits, right? So, so studies show that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is, in fact, a habit. It's not really a decision. When you back your car out of the driveway, that's a habit taking over. When you, when you remember leaving the, the house and sitting at your desk and you can't remember exactly what happened in between getting there, yeah. that's because a habit took over. When you walk into the, to the cafeteria and you intend to get a salad that morning, but you get the same sandwich you get every single day, that's because a habit is taking over. Almost half of what we do every day is habits. And it, it's not about character. It's, a, it's, mm. about, it's about, frankly, understanding how these neurological processes work and then getting the power to change them. A lot of people always talk about, you know, 21 days to create a habit or 60 days to create a brain process or whatever. Um, Did you notice in your research, does it matter the time it takes? Is that even a real part of this? Um, So the the answer is there's no good research on how long it takes because it's different from person to person and behavior to behavior, right? Sure. If you wanted to start a habit that involved eating chocolate, you could probably do that in like Tomorrow. 10 minutes. Right. But if, you, but if you wanted to start exercising, it might take a little bit more time. What we do know, though, is that the way that our neurology works is that every time you pair a cue, routine, and a reward, you, you have developed a neurological pathway associated with that, with that chunk of behavior, and every time you do it, it, that pathway gets a little bit thicker. So as a result, it's a little bit easier for a, an electrical impulse to run down that particular pathway and activate that behavior. Hmm. And, and so it's going to be easier on day three than it was on day one. And it's going to be easier on day 21 than it was on day three. Now, you might not notice it getting a little bit easier at first, but eventually what's going to happen is that it's just going to start feeling automatic, right? And you probably won't even notice when it starts feeling automatic. That's how habits work is we're not really paying attention to them. But... But at some point, you'll cross this line where it feels automatic, and that's when the habit has really taken hold. And, and the nice thing is that if you kind of stick with it, it, it will happen. Yes. It's, something's going to – I mean, it's going to be permanent. The pattern will be permanent in you. The cue right. will be stuck. That's exactly right. It's, yeah. it's also interesting, too, because like, you can see how some people might um, you know, eat or overeat, or they eat to kind of medicate – their their thoughts, but 
instead of just turning that into this major, you know, psychological problem that has to be dealt with, it's it's there's a cue and that cue probably triggers an emotion or a feeling in you. Then you start a routine and you head to wherever, you know, McDonald's and then you get a reward. So, I mean, in a way you've simplified it to a cue. It doesn't mean you don't need therapy, but you still just come down to a cue, a, a routine, a reward, which uh, seems like a little bit easier way to, to approach a habit than just, you know, trying to internalize how messed up you are. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. It's it's uh it's more objective, I guess. Um, when you when you figured this out, I mean, did, did you immediately just sit there and say, "Okay, there's five things I now have to change"? Did you start working more on your <laughs> habits and start fixing stuff, or did you just get it and well, move on? No, I, I mean, so I think one key is that that you shouldn't you shouldn't do five things at once. Right. right? You shouldn't try and five. Try and, and, and fix five things at the same time. In fact, you should what all the research tells us that you should try and do it one at a time. Mm. And, and I think that's important because the takeaway there is really what, what you need to do is you need to focus in on things sequentially and really pay attention to what's going on. Now, the other part about that that's important and interesting is that one of the things that we've learned is that some habits matter more than others. Huh. That some habits, when they start to change, they seem to have this disproportionate impact. They set up a, a chain reaction that changes patterns in their wake. And these are known as keystone habits. So, so take exercise, for instance. There was a, a really interesting study that was done a couple of years ago. Some of this we know, right? When you go running in the morning, Everyone knows that it's easier to like eat healthfully that day yeah. for whatever reason, right? right. You, you just feel better about yourself. You have a salad instead of a sandwich. What's interesting is that these two researchers, they looked at what else changes when people start exercising habitually. And they found that when people start exercising, they also use their credit cards less. They <laughs> tend to procrastinate less. They do their dishes a little bit earlier in the day. And the reason why is because for many people, exercise is a keystone habit. Once you start to change that behavior, it sets off this change. Other behaviors kind of change almost automatically. Uh. And so the key for people is if you want to change a habit, don't choose five things. Choose one thing, but choose something that's a keystone habit, something that when it starts to shift, it will subconsciously change your kind of self-image of yourself. What, so other than exercise, what are a few more keystone habits? Well, it differs from person to person, Does right? So, so the key is, for some people, exercise is a keystone habit. Yeah. For others, it isn't. Oh, yeah, it could so be meditation. It could be... could be meditation. It uh-huh. could be... It's things that seem to have some type of emotional core or emotional aspect. Yeah. Those tend to be keystone habits. So, so for people who, for instance haven't exercised before, for whom exercise is kind of a big deal. Like maybe they're a little bit scared about exercising before they start. For those people, exercise is a keystone habit. Because once you start exercising, even just little exercises, you start changing your self-image of yourself. Sure. Meditation for someone who, who is like, go, go, go all the time, right? Yeah. And makes a point every 15 minutes or every fi- 15 minutes of every morning, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, to meditate or to relax, that's going to start changing their self-image of their self. They're going to start thinking of themselves as, sure, I'm a type A go-getter, but I'm also the type of person who can take five minutes and meditate. Oh, and that's powerful. going to start re- re- reverberating through your life. Absolutely, absolutely. We're talking with Charles uh, Duhigg, author of the book The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion. I want to find out so much more from Charles about the pattern, the, you know, the cycle of habit breaking, habit making. 
We'll get into all of it up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever had a hard time, uh, you know, making a habit, breaking a habit, well, get in line. Hello. It's human nature, and maybe the reason we've struggled with it is because we're focusing on the wrong things when it comes to habit. It might not just be that you have no character. It might not be that you're not disciplined enough, because a habit doesn't just come down to just always being disciplined. It also, believe it or not, comes down to cues or triggers that get us doing something, routines or patterns that, you know, make it happen, and rewards that uh, that help us latch on to it. Joining us right now is uh, a New York Times uh, reporter and a Pulitzer Prize winner of um, – uh, what was the name of the award? It was a great uh, – on, on his Times – um, series called The Eye Economy. Our our guest, Dr. Charles Duhigg, is joining us. And uh, he's also the author of the book, The Power of Habit, where he went and researched all about habits, worked with neuroscientists, tried to figure out what's going on inside the brain to actually create the habit, and wrote the book, The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. Dr. Charles Duhigg, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. Honored to have you. Love the topic. And um, we, before we left, we were talking about these keystone habits and just the power of, of, of doing a keystone type of uh, habit. I, I a lot of times call them rituals. Once you make a habit and it becomes a ritual, but it's something that's important to you, all of a sudden it seems to create more energy, more drive, more power to do more. I had no idea if I had a really good habit like working out that it would actually lower my credit card use. Right. Well, and and I think the reason why, as we mentioned, is because it changes your self-image of yourself, right? One of the things that we do is we we look to kind of the the behaviors that we're exhibiting to form a mental picture of who we are, and habits are are integral to that. What – is there a difference um, between creating a new habit and breaking an old habit, or is it all just the same pattern? Well, it roots from something similar, but there is a big difference, which is that when we think about creating a new habit, that's about choosing cues and rewards that we want to bring into our life. When we think about breaking a habit, it's actually the wrong way of thinking about it, because one of the things that we know from neurological research is that you essentially can't break a habit. You can change a habit. And so what we should be focused on is trying to figure out how to change it. Once you have a neurological pathway associated with a particular behavior, you really can't try to to extinguish that ha- that pathway um, through willpower you might be able to you know sort of muscle your way through not doing something for a little while mm-hmm. but it's unlikely that that you're going to completely extinguish that behavior well because so it's, it's a brain do- pathway right so it's it's like you're not going to eliminate a pathway in your brain right so so what you really need to do is you need to think about how do I change this behavior? How do I, how do I find a new routine or a new behavior that's associated with an old cue and an old reward? Mm-hmm. Smoking is a great example of this, right? Like lots of people, 
associate a cigarette with their morning cup of coffee. And, and the reason why is because nicotine actually has significant rewards. It gives you some energy. It helps you focus. Um, it, it's a, as a drug, it's very, very effective and powerful. And so people need to figure out what am I getting from nicotine that I can get from some other, from some other type of behavior. If hmm. it's a, a burst of energy, then maybe that needs, means that I need to, instead of having a coffee, I need to have a double latte. Yeah. If it's a, a moment of kind of calm reflection, that the cigarette breaks up my day, then maybe I need to take a walk. But the key is that you don't just extinguish that cigarette. You replace it with some other behavior. Huh. Yeah, yeah, like like you were talking about earlier, replacing, you know, socializing with your friends instead of going to get the cookie. Um, is there – where does motivation come into this? Because it seems like a lot of times what drives us is are we motivated to go do certain things or not? Where does the motivation fall into it? Well, I mean, people have to have motivation to change their habit, right? If you're not – if you don't want to change your habit, you're probably not going to. Yeah. Is Is the motivation though – going to naturally change as I change the cycle? You know, is, is, is if I get, if I change my cue pattern and my routine and will, will just the reward or do I need to actually make sure I have a motivational reward to get healthier? Does that make sense? So is it, is it something that just happens when I start to get the natural benefit, for example, of a keystone habit? If I start making that habit, is the reward enough to keep me motivated to do it? Well, I mean, I, I think that differs from person to person, right? Like, the, the, motivation isn't like some like mysterious formula that that we can't figure out what it is. I mean, people know whether they want to do something or not, and unless they want to change, they don't actually change. Yeah, and but then so, I, I so, guess once we start changing, we start getting the benefit. It seems like it would naturally start to fulfill, like, become fulfilling for us. Like, I, I can't necessarily change a habit that I haven't that I don't have, you know, I mean, I can't, how do I get the benefit of exercise if I never, ever exercise? So I might not be motivated to get the outcome of it. I just might want to look better. But then all of a sudden it seems like once I start doing it and I start getting the reward, the reward, the reward itself might become motivating. Sure. Hopefully. I mean, people like rewards. That's why we call them rewards. Yeah. I, I think what's more important is to sort of ask the question, why do sometimes these changes fail, right? And so someone sort of gets like some traction on making a change and then all of a sudden like they they relapse or yeah. something happens. And and typically that's because there's some additional stress that's been added into the system, huh. right? That there's some ant- unanticipated um, moment of stress or crisis, right? Someone gives up smoking and then they have a really bad week or they go and they spend time with their mother-in-law. They, they have this urge to pick up the cigarettes again. And what we know from the research is that is that the way that we avoid those is that we anticipate them. So there's a, a, a group of study called, um, or a band of study called Implementation Intentions that has looked specifically at how do people avoid situations where they might relapse. And the answer is that they tend to be very cognizant of what causes relapse and to have chosen what they're going to do in response ahead of time huh. when they're going to be exposed to certain stresses. And that, just that anticipation creates a structure, a system. What are we supposed to do, Charles, if we blow it? So we blow the habit, um, is all lost, do, or do we just try to catch it the next time? 
do it again tomorrow. No, I think you learn from that, right? You you look at the failure and you say, okay, why exactly did I fall off the wagon here? Hmm. Is it because I, I had all this stress in my life and I, I didn't anticipate that stress or I wasn't recognizing that stress? I wasn't being honest that I had the stress? Is it because there's... There's some friends that when I hang out with, it just like it's just too hard to say no. Right. And then we learn from that. Does that mean that like next time, next time I try and change this behavior, you shouldn't hang out with those friends anymore? Or if you're going to go hang out with your mother-in-law, that you have some plan in, in place. When she's driving you crazy, you're going to walk out the door and you're going to take a walk around the block. Because if you don't, you know that you're just going to want that drink or that cigarette more and more and more. Huh. It is learning, really. It's not just about obtaining the habit. It's about maybe creating a lifestyle of learning around your behaviors. That's right. And transforming. And I apologize. I, I, I need to jump off. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much yeah, for you having bet. me on. And we appreciate you. Again, everybody, Charles Duhigg is his name. Go to his uh, website, Charles Duhigg, spelled D-U-H-I-G-G.com. CharlesDuhigg.com. Great, uh, great resource and tool about habits. Folks, when you think about it, um, day in, day out, it's all about habit, right? What in your day are you not doing that is just, to some degree, not having some patterning or some predictability to it. And yet we spend so much time, so much energy, and so much money just trying to continually break these habits, the, the habits that are just killing us. It's, it's important that we learn um, and, and we take on a process of learning and growing through this. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion in the Coach's Corner about habits. How do we continue to grow and, and start to understand the cues that might be leading us a little bit more using some of the words from uh, the cycle, the habit cycle, and rewards as well as routines. Folks, it's more, it's not magical. This isn't magic. This is just human behavior. And the reality is we all have something to add to it, especially when it comes to understanding our own uh, mind, our own patterns, and our own behaviors. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, today we've been talking about habits and the impact of habits on our lives. Again, uh, just a great book by Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. When you think about it for yourself, what are the habits that you need to handle or deal with or change? Um, I'm going to bet some of them are based very much in simple ideas like, you know, your your eating, right? Your exercise, your time with your family. You're going to notice a lot of those are also deeply rooted in the things that you'd say are most important for you. And if you're not going to change those habits, what I teach is you're going to end up, you know, paying for it. You're going to pay for it, not just because you're going to die young, but you're going to pay for it because your conscience is constantly going to be working against you. We all have a conscience, right? And uh, this this sense of what's right or wrong for us, what's working for us, this sense of what's good, what we need to improve. And uh, maybe that's what would lead us deep down to get more to these keystone habits. 
Uh, I, these are just the leveraged habits, right? Those That one thing that if you do that one thing, it'll create you know, 80% of your success. What's the one thing? In fact, answer it in your own mind. If you knew uh, what's one thing that you know, if you would just do it and you would do it consistently and you would do it well, would positively impact your life. What is that one thing? So whatever comes to your mind, then you got to ask yourself, why aren't you doing that? Oh, because I'm a loser and don't go there. Don't go to the stories of guilt and I'm a loser. That's just your, your mind's way of trying to hurry and get this over with. Let's not get it over with. Let's fix it. Let's do something different, full on fix it. So if I know I, ha- I there's something that I know I need to do better, I need to exercise more, what is it that keeps stopping me? Let's keep it very simple and get to the cues, the routines, and the rewards to, to make the change. Um, what is the cue, the thought that keeps you from doing what you'd, what you'd rather do? Well, it's another eclair. I love my eclairs. What is the cue? What keeps you from just doing the basic thing in your heart that gets in the way? And why um, I think this, these habits and a concept of habit is so important is our habits, I believe, eventually get handed down, right? Traditions get handed down. Uh, interestingly, in my family, we have a tradition of, of um, when you're going to have a party, you, you bring a lot of food. You have a lot of food at the party. That's a habit. My wife comes from a family that their habit is not around bringing a lot of food to the party. Their habit is around we're going to eat and we only need to bring enough food for everyone to eat. That way food's not just always sitting around. But we might even equate that sitting around and having a lot of food is going to help us, right? It's going to help us connect. We're going to socialize and be able to talk around the food and and create a great social atmosphere. Well, is your goal the food or is your goal to have a great social atmosphere that's conducive to that? Because maybe what might be more valuable than just bringing food so we can sit around and keep eating and talking, maybe it would be more valuable to just create a really conducive environment to talk that's comfortable. Maybe every hour we bring around an hors d'oeuvre you know, or a snack or we bring you – know, we just plan it out. So instead of just grazing all day, we might be able to just still get our needs met of socializing. One of the interesting things about our habits though is the habits, they tend to make us or they break us because if if everything in life can be kind of turned automatically on, a lot of the people that you look at that you think are so amazing because they exercise every day, they may not actually have that much more integrity than you do. They just have a pattern, a habit, and they're getting rewarded for it. So you really are only – a cue and a routine and a reward away from creating a lasting habit. And what's so amazing is then your body can kind of go on autopilot on it and then you can just turn it into learning. So here's my challenge to you. Take that one thing that you know, if you did it, would consistently impact your life and ask yourself, why aren't you doing it? What's getting in the way of doing it? What is the cue that keeps you from doing the opposite and or drives you to do the opposite? What's the routine that you've gotten into? Again, I, I talk about it on the, the show all the time. All I got was a gift from a friend 
of a fitness band that I wear on my wrist and it is now creating cues for me. It creates a cue to get me into a routine. And then there's a reward and the cue gets me to go do something that I wouldn't normally do and think about it like I want to get 10,000 steps in. So when I'm sitting and it's you know 7 o'clock at night and I know I've got 7,500 steps in and I have another 2,500 to do, I know that I probably need to grab one of my kids and we need to go play basketball, right? So I wouldn't normally do that. I'd rather just sit there and rest my leg. <laughs> But the reality is the cue of the vibrating uh, you know, fitness band gets me to then get into a routine. And then the reward sometimes is just being out there with my boy. Sometimes it's entering in that I, you know, I just exercised. Or sometimes it's looking at my app that tells me how many calories or whatever I've lost. Now, I've known to enter in my weight, my calories. I've known to do all of this. I've had a step counter forever. But what I guess I was missing the entire time is the cue, the reminder, the little indicator that got me to do it. Well, it wouldn't matter. You'd have more integrity if you just could you know, make that happen yourself. Well, sure. Yeah. We all would. But buying a cheap watch that goes off every 15 minutes that reminds you to take a drink of water, you know, that's also going to help. So what are the cues that you need to create in your life? And what are the keystone habits that matter most to you? Think about your family. Is there a habit around your family that you need to really engage? Maybe it's having a dinner as a family every day. Maybe it's just having a little time at night when you guys can sit in a circle and just talk and check in for the day, talk about tomorrow, share a little thought, maybe have a prayer and go to bed. I call them rituals. He calls them a routine. Rituals, though, to me seem richer. They engage me. They connect me to my family, to my relationships that are more important. If How about maybe you have a keystone because you're a, a big you know, believer in your faith and you love to study the Bible, but you just don't study the Bible. You don't do it enough. Great. What's the cue? What can you do every day? And I asked him about motivation because one of the number one ways I've ever found to find motivation isn't um, isn't always just you know imagining me with this better body. Sometimes the best motivation I've ever found is imagining my relationships. For example, why would I want to get into better shape so that I can be around for my grandkids and my great grandkids? So that my grandkids and great-grandkids can be proud of me when I show up at their game. That motivates me. That's actually more motivating to me than me having this incredibly ripped body. In some regards, I don't believe that will ever happen. But I do want my grandkids to be proud. Oh, there's my grandpa. Now, I don't also need them to believe that I ran a marathon today. But I do want them to know that I can keep up with them on a basketball court. So generally in the end, I think, folks, what it's going to come down to, no matter how great we become as an individual, no matter how amazing and you know phenomenal we are, I think in the end, it's going to come down to just a few basic things that we probably ought to build our habits on, our principles and our relationships. 
And then I think we ought to follow some promptings. Every one of us have something prompting us to do better, to be better, to try something different. Follow those promptings that are healthy and good. Stephen Covey once uh, said there's three things that are constant in life, and one of them is change, folks. Change is never going to go away. The second thing that's constant is choice. You are always going to have a choice for how you will handle the changes of your life. And the third constant are principles. There will always be principles that you can adhere to, that you can draw on to handle and choose in the changes in your life. So can I just suggest if you're going to be focusing on your habits, make sure your habits are tied to principles. To me, that's what a keystone habit would be around. A a habit would be – a keystone habit would be tied to your principles and or your most important relationships, your most important roles. Fairly basic that way, isn't it? So take that one thing that you know you need to do and I want you to find a cue, something that will drive you to go do it. And let's just try today to go do the pattern and just do it the best you can. And like you said, it's not about perfection necessarily. It's about learning. Let's just keep learning. Let's keep learning what we need to do. Let's keep learning today a little bit more about how to be more in control of who we are, more in charge of our own habits. That's the challenge for the day. Coach's Corner, over and out. We're uh, done for this hour. We're going to take a break, uh, come back after the the news break, and we're going to get into a whole new set of opportunities and learnings about emotions, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, everybody. This is the program where we try to give you the solutions, the ideas, the insights you need for you to grow a healthier, happier life. We're not going to tell you how to do it. We're just going to give you the ideas, and then you go take charge. Lead your family. Lead your own personal life. Today we got a great program for you. We are going to be talking about how you can lead your emotions instead of letting your emotions always just take over. And instead of just trying to toss all those crazy emotions out of your life, what if we instead just learn to lead them? We'll be talking to Jennifer uh, Kuntz today. Uh, she's a PhD clinical psychologist who's going to be uh, helping us with our emotions. And it couldn't come fast enough. Terry, we've been... Uh, Working out this two or three months, and I think it's time we have a little emotional checkup on you. What, what's going on? We're, we're going to find out um, where your emotions went. My lack of emotions? Yeah. Is, is that causing concern? Because you gave them away, remember? Oh. You were done with them. Well, they weren't really useful. Oh, my goodness. Did you just say that out loud? Well, yeah. I mean, they didn't really apply anywhere in my life effectively, so I decided to rid myself of the baggage. Mm. You're going to pay for that because you would be dead without your emotions. Well, I, I kept you'd rage. Be, you'd be killed by a, a stray coyote. A stray coyote? But instead, when you hear a coyote howling and then you're in your tent and it starts rooting around in your – you know, you would start to be afraid. And that fear is an emotion 
And that emotion would say, hey, I better get my gun or a rock right. or a Pop-Tart. Throw it a Pop-Tart. See, emotions save you, Terry. Hey, this just in. Murder conviction for Patriot uh, Hernandez. Life in jail. Aaron Hernandez, guilty first-degree murder in the uh, killing of Odin Lloyd. Him and a couple acquaintances went out to an industrial park and took care of the guy. Mm. He's also implicated in another murder that a guy was shot in an intersection, and they found him slumped over his steering wheel because he was blocking traffic. Holy cow. How do you go from a star football player to convicted murderer? Well, in many uh, reporting that has been done, much reporting has been done on this, and it comes out that you don't quite leave where you grew up. Mm. You grow up in a situation, and that sometimes can follow you, depending, you know, regardless of what your future yeah, he's just, endeavors will be. He took some of the associations he had when he was younger with him, and that type of mentality apparently stayed with on on how you get even with people or deal yeah. with people that you're not uh, too happy with. Oh wow! So yeah, he uh, not a big surprise. I mean, there's uh, security camera footage obtained from his home of the night of the incident, showing him walking around the house with the gun in question. So, sheesh. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't really smart about you gotta, if you're, the yeah, crime. You got to be a smart murderer. But that's the crazy thing is it's just this is his way of life. It's just get the business and, uh, done. It is interesting you have a guy that was so good on a national stage. Yeah. And then you hear murder charges and then quickly it turns into it's real and like the NFL pulls away. Friends, family, team, everyone's out of his life and he's – He's in jail now because of what he did. And yeah. it was just kind of surreal to watch that happen. You watch him on Sunday playing great, doing all these things, and then he had a great career. He signed a brand-new contract, millions of dollars, and oh. gone. Uh, he's gonna. I'm pretty sure he's going to chalk it up to concussions. Could be. We talked about that yesterday. Ah, oh, tragic. Tragic. But it beats, you know. At least we're getting them off the street. Yes. Moving them on. You heard of the fast food strike that's going on today? No. Specifically to coincide with tax day. I'm not sure why, but that's what? when they chose well, to do okay. it. Okay. Fast food workers across the nation are going to strike, demanding a 15-hour an hour living wage. So they want $15 an hour to work at the fast food restaurants. So fast food workers across the country. 230 American cities. Okay. Strikes have already begun in some areas. Members of the Fight 215 campaign blocked traffic near the Brooklyn Bridge in New York mm. Wednesday morning. May or may not have gotten violent, depending on reports that you've heard really? or not heard. Uh, low-wage workers also organized protests and marches in Boston, Detroit that began on Tuesday. Organizers of the Fight for $15 movement told USA Today they expect Wednesday's protest to be the largest ever mobilization of U.S. workers seeking higher pay. Huh. Wonder if it'll work. I don't know. I'm going to bet not because uh, behind every – I mean McDonald's in some locations have raised price, sure. raised their, their minimum wage. Um, but, but, but for every you know person that needs $15, there's a teenager that will take nine. Absolutely. And it just seems like until we get rid of all of our teenagers. Which probably won't happen. Because it used to be that, you know, McDonald's was the job for teenagers. So, you know, teenagers will work for night. There does come the question of, is fast food a career option? Hmm. Or is it a starting off point? Yeah. 
And should you look at it as a career option? Well, I think it's dangerous because now where are we going to get our fast food today? I don't know. Scary. Maybe you don't get fast food. You know, Mr. I have a Fitbit. I know. I never get fast food anymore. Today, the European Union formally launched its biggest antitrust case since scrutinizing Microsoft a decade ago, filing charges against Google for allegedly using its overwhelming share of the web search market to inappropriately steer users towards its other Google products. So they're mad that Google has a business model that is so good that ever, that they can then steer everyone. They they probably are saying they're monopolizing it, and but is, that's what business that's what we do. Right? The, the example I heard is Google has some interest in some travel sites selling airfare, hotels, those, those sorts of services, and uh, what they would do you when you'd search for those when you're in the European Union, it would pop up before any of the services you can get from companies in the European Union. Right. So they're purposely putting their – Google's putting their services before anybody else. Well, but I guess uh, those other services could pay a premium to Google no. and then be sponsored ads. Well, okay, yeah, you could be a sponsored ad that way. Okay, so either but, way, Google's going to make money. <laughs> but there's, uh, there's also people – you know, people don't – pay for that. So yeah, they're yeah. monopolizing the whole right. experience. So, so yeah. And so they're saying it's it's unfair business practices and they're going after them it looks like for about 6 billion euros, wow. 6.4 uh, 6.4 billion dollars in fines. That could be the end result of this. By far the largest penalty to date. Holy cow, that's game on. Yeah. So Google has a lot to lose. Well, yeah, and that's wow. Because think of that too now. Okay, Google just raised their prices. But it is quite interesting to – if they're, uh, if they're getting traction, then you're going to need Google. I mean anybody that does web marketing. Google's response is there are other search engines. Yeah. But honestly, if you want to be competitive and make money and then, get to the most people, Google is the, the search engine of choice. Interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of – an. It, we'll, mm. we'll follow that as it continues going on. Uh, CareerCast.com puts out a job-rated list every okay. year. They list the top 200 jobs. Yeah. In the United States. Uh, is uh, Based on... Talk show host on there? Yes, it is. It is oh, wow. It's based on opinions, based on, you know, are you happy in the job? What's the future prospects? What's the okay. salary? All cool. those kind of uh, determinations. The top job is an actuary. Oh, wow. They interpret statistics to determine probabilities of accidents and those types I of things. I don't quite see how that's a great job. Uh, but... Followed by an audiologist, mm-hmm. mathematician, statistician, and biomedical engineer. Those are the Hold top on. five. What? I know. None we're, of us in this room could qualify for any of those jobs. We're not going to be happy in our jobs. The worst jobs, newspaper reporter, <laughs> lumberjack, oh, yeah. enlisted military personnel, cook, and at number 196, radio and TV broadcaster. Totally. People are unhappy, future job prospects, salary, those sorts of considerations. Wow. So we should have been audiologists. Apparently. Apparently people like, you know, you go in and they, they play a tone in one ear and yeah. the person raises their hand. They just they just love that job. What, what do they love? I'm not sure. We'd have to ask an audiologist. We probably ought to interview them or an actuary. I mean, who even knew that they were still around? And the quote with the article says, that I know a lot of actuaries and not one of them hate their job. They all love their job. Let's go. Let's take an in-depth report on this. James, do you know any actuaries? My dad's an actuary, actually. Actually? Actually an actuary. Yep. Does he like his job? Yeah, he really likes it. He predicts accidents? 
yep, does a lot of really boring statistics that he tries to explain to me and my family, which none of us understand, but he seems happy. So it actually sounds boring except for your father. Yeah, he loves it. Actually. Well, and and, uh, there's also the running joke that's actually not that funny that actuaries don't have senses of humor. So It's a running joke. Yeah. Well, yeah. I well, I think maybe that's why they enjoy their job. Yeah, my dad just constantly makes jokes and uh, nobody funny. laughs, and it's so it's it's hard to to know if it's either that's just dad humor yeah. or it's actuarial humor. Maybe, so. may, maybe that's it. Is he spends too much time managing risk, so he doesn't. You need to kind of sometimes just free flow a joke and just mm-hmm. just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just always think them all through. Yeah. Interesting. I maybe I'm in the wrong job. I always thought like so pulled and driven to do my job, but. Should have been an audiologist or an actuary without a sense of humor. Huh. It's sad. Top five jobs. The happiest jobs we, none of us can qualify for. That's why STEM is out. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. And when we come back, should you just get rid of all of those feelings? You know, we all have emotions. We have feelings. Would you just love to just, you know, get rid of them? Be done with them. Life would be so much easier, right, if you didn't feel... Maybe not. We're going to be talking about it. Dr. Jennifer Kunst will be joining us. She's going to walk us through uh, our feelings and the important role that they play in our lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Hey, welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You ever just wondered what all these feelings are for, all these emotions? You've got sadness, you know, excitement, but you have love, you have hate. They collide all the time. Fear and longing. Can they coexist? Desire, hope, dread. Boy, all of these emotions, they tend to mix us up. So sometimes we think if we could just get rid of the feelings, boy, that would make life so much easier, right? Well, according to our next guest, Jennifer Kunst, uh, you know what? Maybe it's not the best idea to just get rid of your feelings. They're probably helping you more than you ever knew. Uh, Dr. Kunst uh, works with adults and couples in her private practice in Pasadena, California, and she also runs and is the author of a blog at Head Shrinker's Guide to the Galaxy, which you can find on Psychology Today. Jennifer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's great to have you. And talk about uh, talk about emotions because I mean I think if or I guess feelings we just we just they're constant. They're always kind of working on us. And for a lot of people, they're they're just too much. They want to get rid of them. Exactly. You know, I'm a, a psychologist and a psychoanalyst out here in uh, sunny Southern California, where everybody likes to have very happy feelings. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we need a little bit of uh, clouds and rain to uh, have to deal with the rest of our emotional life. <laughs> it's but that's true, huh? You kind of need – it's going to happen. There's going to be that, that yin, that yang, that balance. Absolutely. I mean, um, one of the things that I talk about in my uh, writing and also with my clients is that uh, the thing that brings meaning uh, to life actually is our emotional life. If we were just a, a bunch of thinkers, we'd be more like robots and computers. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, you sort of think of uh, 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 Mr. Spock from the Star Trek days and 
how limited he was not having access to his feelings and i think that's true for us too that they are the uh, i call them the boon and bane they're, they're the best and the worst of uh, what makes us human but it's what makes us human mm. and without it you know we use other words you, you you point this out words like stoic and aloof and vacant and distant and robotic which you know no one wants that on their you know their epitaph man grandpa well, yeah, was so robotic and, uh, Exactly, that you don't have um, a full experience of yourself, and you can imagine how much uh, we would be handicapped if we didn't have our feelings when it comes to being able to relate to other people, for example. It really is tied to our personality. You call it the gas in the engine of our personalities. Talk about that. What do you mean by that? Well, meaning that... um, Emotions are sort of the fire in the belly. Uh, they're the, the energy, the resources that get us up and going in the morning. They're the heart of creativity. They're what drives us to uh, grow ourselves, to be in relationship with other people. And without all of that kind of juice, gas, um, we would be, you know, stalled in the driveway. <laughs> so true. I mean, true. You wouldn't get up. You wouldn't get going. You wouldn't go create the masterpiece you wouldn't stick to a hobby or a, a goal. They really exactly. – and you also wouldn't you know, feel the lows of your life. You wouldn't suffer when someone died that you cared for. So you're, you're, I guess you're, you're saying in essence we have to have the pain to know the high. Well, exactly. And um, there have actually been some studies done by this fellow named um, Damasio – who is a neuroscientist, and he studied people who have um, had some kind of traumatic brain injury, and um, that, that affects the feeling center of the brain. And what he discovered is that without uh, being able to be in contact with our feelings, we're really clueless about how to make decisions in life. Huh. So that um, n- not only do the lows help us connect with the highs, but feelings like anxiety, frustration, fear and uncertainty, kind of our cues that, that, we, that we turn to those gut feelings inside to help us um, navigate and negotiate our way in the world. And without them, we kind of don't know what to do. Oh, it's true. I mean, is, is that, that's why we have feelings, right? I mean, we've kind of grown them, we've evolved them so that we have guidance, we have direction in our day-to-day life. I think so. I mean, that's probably part of what makes human beings different than, you know, creatures um, who are non-human. Uh, that the, the more feelings that you have, the more adaptive we are in the world, the more we're able to um, uh, behave well, succeed, achieve, improve, all, all that kind of stuff. And was it Damasio that said it, or you? I just remember reading in some of your material that um, it, it's it's about our gut feeling. It creates this gut feeling that is this indicator. Oh yeah, don't touch that fire. <laughs> or exactly. No, that's Demacio. Um, that that is kind of what he calls the, um, the the emotional engine of the brain is is the the gut feeling reaction that helps cue us to sort sort of do we do we fight or flee? Which direction do we go? Hmm. So the idea of getting rid of them apparently is not going to happen, even though millions of people are trying to medicate themselves away from their feelings every day. Oh, absolutely. And I think it it is our first strategy when we have particularly hot feelings. 
uh, whether that is intense uh, love and desire, hatred and frustration, is that we want to get rid of them. And so many people who come to me in therapy, even after a long time of being with me, still have that idea. They come into a session, they say, I'm so upset. Help me not be so upset anymore. Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And then I guess there's the cathartic effect of just talking to you or a counselor and being able to emote and get the feelings out of you. I guess that that creates – does that dissipate the feeling? Well, that's, uh, I think, a, a first step but doesn't do the whole job, that the idea is to move towards your feelings, like you're saying, with someone um, who can accept them and make space for them so you have the chance to, to vent and have – uh, that kind of cathartic release of emotion. But what I talk about as a psychoanalyst is sort of the next step, which mm-hmm. I think is often forgotten, which is to develop the capacity to think about your feeling without either getting rid of them or acting on them. Oh, interesting. That's, so, yes. that's part of gr- growing them a sturdy mind to be able to think about your feelings and use them to guide you. It's sort of to harness the, the power of your feelings. Um, as a guide rather than either getting rid of them or being um, hijacked by them. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like put your feelings in a way in neutral so they're not driving you or you know creating a fight or flight or whatever in you, but then being able to process them, think them through, evaluate them, turn them around, look them in every direction, deal yes, with them. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and channel them. And humans can do that. I mean that that is what separates us from I guess other animal uh, other animal kingdoms I guess is that we're sure. W- sure we can actually look at them maybe more objectively try to gain more insight we we're going to have to figure that out we're going to take a break in a minute um and and talk about that in depth D- help me understand this one more thought before we do that though sure. um does do what happens when my partner or and I saw in my workshop last night we ended up talking about this a lot when my spouse's need to talk about emotion ends up creating more emotion in me mm-hmm. so then all of a sudden she might need to talk or whatever oh, I don't want to talk about that and then my emotion goes up and then my emotion triggers her emotion I guess that's why we need to learn to suspend them a little bit but there's a, there's a pattern that goes on with humans where we our need to vent sometimes causes everyone else's emotion. Exactly. Yeah, and and uh, that's particularly true in intimate relationships between partners. And the, and another uh, prototype of that is relationship between children and their parents. Mm. Yeah. And that we're we're very fortunate to have someone in our lives who can temporarily manage their own feelings to help us manage ours. Yeah, kind of a coach. Oh, a coach or a, the way I receive it, uh, I think of it as someone who can receive them and make space for them mm. um, and kind of set our own needs aside for the moment. I mean, that's not a good long-term strategy yeah. in marriage, but at least for that moment to be there. I think that's part of being there for another person. Oh, I think that's powerful. And, and, and I think, too, you know, if you can do it for others, you could probably do it for yourself. Um, it's powerful. We're going to talk about this uh, more in depth. Take a break here with Jennifer Kunst, Dr. Jennifer Kunst. And uh, again, go check out that blog. She's really, she's onto something here, folks. I mean, it shouldn't be like a new idea. You can't get rid of the emotions. You're going to have to figure out a way to evaluate them, to learn, to assess them without letting them just take you over and run your life. We'll have more of that right here on the Matt Townsend Show after this break. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Right now, we're dissecting emotions. If you've ever just wanted to just, you know, offload all things emotional and just go to that happy place, you know what? Uh, There might be a healthier way to do it than just trying to numb yourself or just make sure you don't feel. Joining us is Jennifer Kuntz. She's a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. She's also the author of the book, Wisdom from the Couch, Knowing and Growing Yourself from the Inside Out, and a, uh, you know, a Psychology Today um, uh, author or writer as well and blogger. So, Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. I'm enjoying speaking with you. you. Me too. And it's this emotion thing, it's so basic to humanity. And yet I really think it's kind of one of the last frontiers. We, we've gone so many places outside of ourselves. Maybe the, the last place we need to really learn to investigate is our own emotional state. Yeah, it's so basic, I think, to uh, having a meaningful and satisfying life that we can have all sorts of achievements and uh, accomplishments and wind up feeling fairly empty about our lives. I think that's um, a big struggle in our culture today. Oh, yeah. Talk Uh, about how we evaluate it. When you sit down with a client, what do you teach them about how to process and go through their emotion without just becoming more emotional? Well, um, I, I think there may be some becoming more emotional in the process. But uh, one of the things that causes us to be um, so interested in getting rid of our feelings is that we feel that they're actually too hot to handle. So, you know, in the, the, the quiet uh, and the structure of, say, a counseling session or even a conversation like you and I are having, if you can convey to a person that you can receive their feelings, that, that they're not too hot for you, it, it conveys to them that maybe they're not as dangerous as they first thought. Hmm. It's a little bit like um, uh, feelings are like the monster in the closet for a little kid, that the, the more uh, frightened you are, the less you're likely to look into the closet and turn the light on. But if you have a mom or a dad that can say, you know, honey, it's not as bad as you think. Let's take a look. Let's turn the light on. Let's open the door. And you have the courage to do so you actually find out that it's not as scary as you once thought. And that's profoundly helpful when it comes to dealing with our feelings. Oh, yeah. Because then I, I have a mirror. I see that I – mean, I've even seen clients when I've been working with them. They'll say something and they'll look at you like, so are you going to freak out now? Exactly. And you're like, mm, no, that's weird. Okay, keep going. That's right. It's interesting. Wait. And then it gives you this energy like, oh, okay, so emotions don't have to control every conversation. Exactly, and that they're not controlling this conversation. Yeah, you know, so it's not just an abstract idea or something that you're taught. You're actually experiencing it with another person who is not intimidated or um, reactive in a hot way to your hot feelings. Oh, man. That could be one of the number one keys to just creating a healthier conversation in a couple is right. the ability to not get – I, I call it hijacked or emotionally flooded and, and just allow the conversation to go without, you know, without making the emotion be the lead. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. How, how do you, the, how do you teach that? Um, well, it's or do mostly it. by, by exactly by encouraging people to bring their feelings 
and to have a live experience that's more, you know, the technical word would be more curative or reparative, that they don't get what they expect, which is that it's going to be bad. Yeah. That they actually get a more manageable kind of experience. Is that easier for you to do as a professional, Jennifer, just because I always have clients say, yeah, well, yeah, you're not, you're not, you don't know my husband or you're not in this situation. So it's easier for you to be on the outside. Or do you sense that that could be something we could all do with each other? Well, of course, being a mental health professional, um, I am more used to this and a big part of training to become uh, particularly a psychoanalyst, is about becoming a very disciplined, able uh, container for other people's feelings. But I do think that um, uh, it's very possible for all of us to develop a greater openness. And um, I, I think of it as a sort of discipline with our feelings. Um, I, one of the examples I use in my book, it, it's kind of an everyday example, is you know the film The Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. That one of the things that um, the uh, karate uh, master, Mr. Miyagi, had to teach the young, the, the young boy Daniel in training was how to channel his feelings. And in, in the course of that movie, you know, Daniel erupts, he gets upset, right. and Mr. Miyagi is present to him. He doesn't run away. And so that uh, the, the boy is able to be in touch with his feelings but find the kind of the power in them without being taken over. By them, and I think that's kind of a neat analogy uh, to what mothers try to do with their children, what uh, partners try to do with one another. Is yeah. to really kind of stay with it, you know, not run away and not be flooded, but to to grow a mind to be able to stay with it. It's so powerful. I've even just seen it at a ballpark. You know, a boy strikes out. He goes to the dugout, dejected, yeah. angry, sad, and sometimes you'll see parents go over there, and sometimes you won't. Yeah. And, and and yet you also see him throwing his helmet around, kicking the dirt, and it's like somebody needs to teach that boy how to handle these emotions right here. Right, and to um, to harness them. Yeah, use them. So that the next time he goes to bat, um, he's more determined. Mm. He's 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 got the that that extra oomph to to do better next time or to try again. Yeah, and it, it really is. Sometimes it's so hard to step toward. The emotion of another person, even though that could be more curative, more healing, and instead we just kind of step away. We kind of avoid it. And it tends to make it worse. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Cause th- th- and they also don't have a source where they can go to alleviate it. Right. Yeah. Right. It's powerful. Well, um, what uh, What else do we need to make sure we, we know? We got about a minute left. What would you say, Jennifer, is the one thing when it comes to our emotions – that we need to make sure we understand so we can, you know, value them, benefit from them. Well, that the, the marriage between thinking and feeling will get you very far in life. That uh, feelings without thinking um, can, can really uh, erupt, and thinking without feeling, you know, is, is a, a, as flat as it comes. Mm. And so that it's a, it's a marriage of bringing those two things together. There's a, the, a researcher named Marsha Linehan who uh, wrote a lot about um, borderline personality disorder, and she calls the marriage between our emotional mind and our rational mind wise mind. Huh. I think it's a very useful idea to, to bring emotions 
and thinking together, and that is wisdom. Yeah, and the so you're you're, you're practical, you're rational, but you're still, you know, taking the insights that come from the emotion. Mm. Wisdom, exactly. folks. We all could use more of that, right? For sure. That's why I called my book Wisdom from the Couch. There you go. Because I think there's something deep about having a full emotional and thinking life uh, that would be useful for people to hear about. Yeah, truly. And it is beautiful. Um, you know, you, it's a part of our life you don't want to lose. And yet, even though we, we sense we want to. Jennifer, we appreciate you and the great work you're doing. Everybody go out and uh, look up that book, Wisdom from the Couch, Knowing and Growing Yourself from the Inside Out. Another tool for you to help manage your emotion, um, you know, and create wisdom. Heaven forbid. The balance of emotion and uh, rationality. Wisdom. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. When we come back, be visiting the guys from BYU Sports Nation, the source of wisdom, right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little earth, wind, and fire <laughs> for some of my favorite guys. BYU Sports Nation, they love the earth, the wind, and the fire. Hey, gentlemen, welcome to the show. I love that song so much. I can see you shaking I really it. do. <laughs> you guys, I need a little more yeah, excitement yeah. down there. Oh, there's the falsetto we've been that missing. That wasn't me. That was Spencer. Spencer, you okay, bud? You look right. like you're in pain. I'm all right, man. Okay, you again, Spencer. Not to not to you know point things out, but you barely made it again. I didn't barely make it. Well, we we kept we were looking for a better song for you guys, so that we we stalled for you a little bit. But <laughs> we were worried. I saw worry. You almost can't pick a better song. The, did you love that song? No, I'm dead serious. That's one of my favorite songs. Well, no, what what makes it your favorite? My mom loved Earth, Wind, and Fire growing up, and we would. Play that and dance around and have fun. Wow. I love that song. Seriously. I know. That's cool. Now we know that. So I'm going to tell my mom, hey, they played, uh, you know. September. September by Earth, Wind, and Fire this morning. I, it's funny because when, awesome. I, when I, I would think I would have seen something in your face that would have said, because we just talked about emotions on the show. I thought I would have seen a different emotion, but you just looked stoic and you were sitting there. I'm tired. Is that it? Yeah. You're tired. Yeah. Hey, hey um, I got some news for you. This is tragic. You always do. Did you hear about the man that ruptured his tendon? No. You won't believe how. It reminded me of you guys. Um, (laughs) 29-year-old California man visited an orthopedic surgeon's office with a torn tendon because he overindulged his love of Candy Crush. Yikes. He played so much Candy Crush, he basically blew up his tendon. What in the world? Now, let me tell you what in the world he uh, he played every day, all day, for six to eight weeks with his left hand while relying on his right hand for other tasks. They had Cheetos, bathroom stops, whatever. Mm-hmm. What? Okay. He blew. Did he have like a Guinness World Record purpose in this or something? No, he didn't. He just was very lonely. Oh. Just a very, very, very lonely person. That is depressing. I heard he was actually listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire while he was doing it. (laughs) 
That would have been sensory overload. That's the elite. <laughs> that would have been too much. So I'm telling you to watch out, guys, because I know once your show's done, I know. I've seen you. I've seen you in the little break room playing Candy Crush. Playing. I've never played Candy Crush. I don't oh, even know boy. what the purpose of the game is. Can you explain it to me? You it's crush candy. Tetris. Is okay. it with candy? Yeah. It's Tetris so, sort of, ideology. Sort of. Yes. You sort know of. what? Just so you know, guys, uh, we don't play that game. On the Matt Townsend show, we play a game called Deer Hunter 2014. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that's uh, we're not. They're not sponsors. Uh, we don't have sponsors on my show, but they're they're not sponsors. But we mention them all the time. And I've killed pretty much every animal you could kill, but never killing them, really. Okay, serious question, Matt. Yeah. Jeremy and I are in the market to uh, buy a video gaming system that we can enjoy here. Okay. At work and downtime. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, you guys have downtime? Yeah, not much. Do you have a couch? Are you going to put it near a couch? There's I'm... a day in July. Okay. Yeah, this, in the summer, like, there are a few days where it's like, okay, yeah, we've got some downtime. So no, there's summer down. What game? What game? Uh, what are you gonna buy? I don't know. Like we I, know. What are you talking well, the about? The thing is, I don't know. Like well, we've been discussing an uh, an original Nintendo Entertainment mm. Tecmo Super Bowl. No, we have that. We just played that all spring break. You with can't the, go wrong with that. With the game Tecmo Super Bowl. That's all I want to play. Really? You I mean? have I have a neighbor that has the game, and we and I can play it there though. So like the yeah. the thirst is lessened for me. Than when we originally had this conversation, because I have a resource. Yeah. Jerem has one of those friends. Hey, you want to be friends? He has an. Out. I'll be your friend if I can play Tecmo Super Bowl. No, it's part of our friendship. <laughs> you guys, that's interesting. Because so, if you do buy that, can I come play? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Absolutely. We need. We need. Do you know what game we're talking about? No, but I want to broadcast. I, I've never played Tecmo. Whatever. Tecmo, Tecmo Super Bowl. Never played Super Bowl. That. It was the original NFL football game on an entertainment system. But how old is that system? Is it the uh, old? Uh, it's the old gray box. Well, Nintendo. Yes, the old gray oh, box. Nintendo, yes. Nintendo was built original in '84. Yes. NES. Yes. Okay, I'll play that. And so then like, it went out in mass in like '86. But see, I, 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 if we can do that, that would be great. I'd also like to play Punch Out. Oh, yes. great game! Yes. Little Mike great Tyson, game. another great one. Mm-hmm. Little Mac. Mm-hmm. That's Mike when Tyson. I be- Punch Out. That's when I became a Mike Tyson, you know, fan. Oh yeah, oh, I hate block, bald block, bowl. block, block. Oh yeah, block. punch. <laughs> See? Star. Okay, yeah. we're going to do this. Let's do it. Okay. Go ahead and buy it, guys. All right. Maybe we should discuss that on the show today, Jerem. Like what? Yeah. What entertainment system should we buy? I'd go with buy? Atari personally. Pong. Pong. <laughs> I'd go with the great the great uh Frogger. The, yeah, Frogger, <laughs> Pong and 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 Pac-Man and um yeah. Donkey Kong. Yeah. Oh, baby. Yeah. The trifecta. Why is it that retro video games are like so in right now? It makes you feel young again. Man. It's kind of like corduroy jeans and turtlenecks. Uh, Matt, I think you're yeah, alone on you. that island. I feel you. <laughs> no, certain generation are like, oh, yeah, Matt. That's what we're talking about. Hey, now, guys, what's going to be on your show today? It is the beginning of the recruiting period for mm. BYU basketball and football. And so... You know, you think that these guys get a break, like, oh, it's the off season. There's no off season. There's Recruiting no break. never, ever, ever stops. Yeah. Well, there are dead periods where it does stop. <laughs> but even then, they're evaluating tape and looking at different things. Like, they can still do those things. They just can't contact people. Well, or they're playing Tecmo. 
Yeah, they're not playing Tecmo Super Bowl. Okay. They're taking it seriously. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I get That's it. That's for now. us. That's you guys. That's for us. That's for us, the guys that wear the corduroy pants and turtlenecks. <laughs> so you're going to get into you're going to get into all the recruiting news, what's going on. Yeah, well, what what is the priority for BYU football right cool. now? And there's this big hot topic of in-state, winning back in-state recruits because we're losing them to out-of-state schools. Yeah. yeah. Or in-state schools up the road. Yeah. So you know, what? where is the emphasis? What should the emphasis be? And uh, the fans will sound off on that as well. We've got Colton Mahoney, BYU pitcher on the show, quarterbacks coach Jason Beck of BYU football with us. You know, it's yeah. just what we do. It's a good show. And if you really want to nail it, I'd throw in a little Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yes. You can't, can't go, go wrong with video there. games, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and no. football. No. I mean, seriously. Just throw in some, you know, some chips. <laughs> and you've got yourself a day. Some chips. <laughs> Okay. okay, gentlemen, have a great show. <laughs> All right, thank Go you. enjoy your chips. <laughs> Woo! See ya. Be good. Um, yeah, you can't you, you, chips. Why are they laughing that I said chips? I mean, that's just the right way to say it. I said corduroys, turtlenecks, and chips. It's just what we do. A little salsa. Mmm. Life is good. Well, folks, uh, there you have it. Really, honestly, we try to just bring you tools, and today. Apparently, it looks like BYU Broadcasting is going to be picking up a game system paid for by the guys down at, you know, BYU Sports Nation. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, Here, uh, as we kind of are wrapping up the show today, I want you to be thinking about you. It's an interesting discussion we've had overall where we talked about emotions. We talked about that today uh, in this last hour. We also talked about bosses in the first hour of the show. You may not have caught that one. Uh, just about the f- simple fact that 50% of the people that they surveyed in a study with Gallup, 50% of them have basically left a job just to get away from their manager. And is that not crazy? We also talked about habits and the importance of creating habits, making habits, and how, you know, sometimes the habit. Isn't uh, doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be something that you just need so much character and integrity to go figure out. Habit is just a simple convergence of a few things. A cue. Every one of us has a simple little idea, something that drives us, that pushes us to to do something, that reminds us of something. Then we usually have a, a basic routine that we do, and then there's a reward. So every time I get tired, I might that might be the cue. I'm starting to feel tired in the middle of the afternoon. I might have a routine where I turn off my lights, climb under my desk, roll up one of my jackets, and I take a long nap. The reward is rest. That's a habit I need to break. So how do we do it? Then I've got to recognize what's the cue. What is it that drives me to want to take the nap? Is it the feeling of tired? Is it trying to get away after talking for three hours? What is it? Whatever it is, though, once we find the cue, we can break. We can start to break and understand how to break the routine and eventually the, uh, the simple pattern or the habit. That was a book by Charles uh, Duhigg, which is uh, a very basic concept called The Power of Habit. Great stuff we've talked about. But now it's time to say goodbye. And as we do, um, we always like to just do one more quick check. With James uh, on the wedding update. James, everything uh, still healthy on the, the wedding of the millennium? Yes, everything still healthy, going well. We're still engaged? Yeah. You said uh, that the invitations are now out. Mm-hmm. So all of you listeners, you should be getting your own personalized invitation from James and uh, Monica. Mm-hmm. 
for the upcoming nuptials. They're um, en route. They're en route, 17 days, six hours away. Make sure you save that date. And um, again, as far as tuxedos go, uh, any news on that? An update on what I should wear to the wedding and for the toast and for the wedding dance with the bride? Um, it's That's still forthcoming. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that you you guys got to get on. It makes me wonder how much planning you're actually doing. Well, now. you know what? I don't even have a ring yet, so that's that's kind of at the top of our priority list right now. You don't have a ring? ring? Well, didn't you give her a ring? Uh, well, I I don't have my ring. Oh, that I so to show that I'm going to be married as well. So I kind of oh. need to. Get Isn't that her thing? Maybe. Why are you uh. involved? That's her deal. No idea. Because maybe I have to approve what ring. No, you know, let me get no. your ring. Just have her buy one. I'll buy oh. your ring. You'll buy my ring. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe I'll just leave that to her. No, she, I'm on it. Well, I'm on it. She's got style. So. Yeah, no, so do I. Okay, well. so do I. Oh, I, I've got style. You'll see that. Um, okay, I'll get the ring. Don't even worry about it. There's not a price limit, right? No big deal. Um, Wedding of the Millennium. Don't miss it. It's coming up in 17 days. That's the show, my friends. The Matt Townsend Show, where we try to give you the tools to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. We'll be back again tomorrow with more ideas, more tools to give you a leg up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care.